Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. This is the Weekly Stuff Podcast, episode number 420, so we will be doing this entire episode high. I mean, uh, jokes on the viewers, we do every episode high. We do not. We're not doing this one high. Uh, I just realized that right before we started recording, this was episode 420, and I think I am, by the rules of the internet, legally obligated to make a 420 joke, so... You know, you guys can blaze it. That's fine. Yeah, let's 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 hotbox this podcast, bro. There's my pot humor for the episode. I you can tell that. we're really in on this. We're really hip. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've played Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. That is the most <laughs> weed thing I have done in my life. Just played Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Yes. Yeah. I have I have played uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater in a room where a bunch of people were high as fuck. That as that has actually happened. Okay. I I did not partake though. Yeah, I have I sadly have not had that uh, specific experience, but yeah. Anyway, so there you go. Celebrate episode four twenty, however you want to. We did not come up with something clever and do like a Cheech and Chong podcast or something. No, I had no idea that we even got to this point. It is it is it feels like maybe the most important milestone we've reached in many ways though. Yeah, how many podcasts get to make a 420 joke like this because they got to episode 420? It's pretty rare, I have to think. In any case, what are we actually talking about on today's show? We're going to be talking about Elden Ring, which we have not been playing high. I can't tell if that would be a good or bad game to play high. I mean, I think you'd probably care less about dying, but you would die a lot more. (laughs) Yes. It is definitely, it's a game that like, you know, other than if you're doing, you're like just sort of running around in the open world finding stuff. But when you're actually like in a dungeon... That is a game that I feel like, as with all these games, demands so much focus and attention that it's not the kind of thing, you know, where people are like, you know, if they play billiards or something and they feel like, oh, I get a couple drinks in me, I'm a little bit better. Souls is not a thing like that. You got to be like really (laughs) on your shit or you're going to get jumped by a pack of fucking rabid dogs. Yeah, I mean, feel free to correct us if if you are someone who, you know, smokes a bowl every time before you play Souls. That is your ritual. And maybe you're good at that. Let us know. I would be surprised, but you know, I'm yeah, I'm ready to learn. Anyway, we'll talk about Elden Ring, and then for our sort of main topic today, you'll be hearing another weekly suit Gundam extravaganza, where we are finishing our journey through Gundam: The Origin. Uh, we already did all of the OVA series, but we are going to be talking about the manga, particularly the parts of the manga that are not in the in the TV show, because we've covered that story extensively. But uh, I read the manga. About half a year ago, you read it earlier this year while we were doing the mm-hmm. Origin series, and it's a great, great, wonderful manga that we're excited to talk about. Yes, it's a rare, rare episode where we're, we're talking about manga and not, not anime. Yes, and I love manga, so I'm excited yeah. for this. In any case, Sean, do you have any other stuff other than Elden Ring, or has that just been your entire waking life? That's basically been my entire waking life. I mean, I've, I I have managed to watch some Jujutsu Kaisen. Uh, not as much as I had <laughs> intended to at this point, but it, it's like the, one of the few things in terms of like entertainment that I was like, you know, because Jujutsu Kaisen is very good, but it's Elden Ring is so all-consuming. It is a thing that like I'm I am really properly been fully obsessed with for like two and a half weeks at this point. Um, and I kind of feel like 
I'm at the point with it where I feel like I need to mainline it even more just to finish it. Like, I just have to finish it so that other things can take my attention. <laughs> um, and it's like, and, and instead of trying to pace it out um, in a more sane person way, I feel like my only option, because I'm sitting so deep at this point, is just go as far as possible um, to finish it because it is it has absorbed my entire life. Yeah, uh, I kind of feel the same way, except I'm not on the, like, go through it as fast as possible route, Sean, especially because that's just not an option for me, because uh, there will not be a podcast next week, just so you all know, a little programming note, because I will be out of town uh, for spring break. My family is going to New Orleans, Louisiana. I've never been there. Should be fun. Um, and I'm not going to be podcasting from New Orleans. That would be hard. So I'm not doing that. I'm not bringing my whole mic set up yeah. on, on the plane. So there just will not... We thought about sk like splitting this episode into two, and I just thought, eh, let's just give it all to them at once, and we can have a week off, and it'll actually be our first week off this year. So yeah. that's fine. Um, but that means, Sean, there will be about eight days where I cannot play Elden Ring, and I am really dreading that. Yeah, and, and I will have probably finished Elden Ring. Yeah. over the course of that eight days and i'll be there having basking in the glory of of the being becoming the elden lord or whatever the fuck's gonna happen at the end of this game and you will be uh, in uh, new orleans <laughs> like living an actual life and having fun and eating binets and fucking going and, and going down like the bourbon street and having a good time um and i'll be i'll be an undead monster I'm just imagining you doing the Elden Ring pose that yes. is in the game um, while I'm in New Orleans. Yeah, no. So I am kind of I I kind right now I'm exploring uh, Nakron, the uh, sacred city. We'll talk more mm -hmm. about what we've been playing later, and I think I'm gonna try to finish that up before I leave. But then I'm I'm kind of like I'm definitely not going to a giant new area like the North or something um, that I haven't explored yet because I want to try to find a fairly natural place to kind of uh -huh. break for a little bit. Uh, I am looking forward to on my trip, you know, I'll bring my Switch and I'll play some Pokemon and stuff like that. But yeah, my only other stuff is, like I said, uh, I've been watching Jujutsu Kaisen. I finished that. We're going to be doing a podcast in two weeks on that and then the new, the movie that's coming out, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero. I did read the Jujutsu Kaisen Zero manga, which is a super interesting thing because what it is, if you don't know what this like new movie is, why is it Jujutsu Kaisen Zero? Why is it a prequel? It's because the mangaka... Um, their first, this wasn't their first manga ever, but like their first high profile thing was this four chapter monthly manga they did that was called something else. And I forget what it was originally called. It was like Tokyo Sorcery School or something, but it was basically the precursor to Jujutsu Kaisen. And it had a lot of those characters like Gojo Sensei, but it had a different protagonist. And those four chapters sort of were popular. And so then they got the deal to do the full manga in Jump, but they restarted with the new protagonist of Itadori Yuji. And that's where the anime picks up. But Jujutsu Kaisen Zero yeah, was, that's the that's the name for the collected manga of these four chapters that comes out, like is republished later. Um, and like, that's where like the third year characters in Jujutsu Kaisen, like Panda um, and those characters, they come from Zero. They're the first years alongside that character. So that's what this new movie is, is based on those four chapters. And it's an interesting little manga. I think it's good, not great, but it's got the pieces to make an absolutely phenomenal movie if they play their cards right. And based on the trailers I've seen and the reaction I've heard, it sounds pretty cool. So that was kind of fun to read. I might go ahead and, and read more of the manga because the anime left me very rabid for more. Yeah, yeah, I'm... I'm uh i'm very excited for the movie i i already got my tickets and luckily the movie theater that's kind of like the movie theater i've sort of settled on is the one that's close to where i live is a 
um, a Cinemark theater that gets these kinds of releases anyways. So so it's actually, I don't yeah. have to go out of my way. It's like kind of the normal theater um, that is nice. doing Jesus Christ and Zero, which is nice. Yeah, one thing that's interesting, because I haven't read the Jujutsu Kaisen Zero manga, but because of the movie, like, I'm kind of aware of the synopsis, and I, like, knew about kind of its origin as this almost kind of, like, which is a somewhat common thing in manga, is this kind of almost, like, soft pilot. Um, but usually they're not actually, like, integrated narratively into whatever the series is. It usually is like, oh, here's this kind of stylistic thing you tried got it became like successful enough that now let's kind of take those ideas but then turn it into a different thing that is a full series whereas this is an actual like narrative uh kind of continuation of that story and i know that because i had never really picked up on the protagonist from jesus kaisen zero's name comes up all the time in the yes, first season does. of that show yeah um and i had you know obviously i had like heard that dialogue or whatever but i did never like jumped out at me as Okotsu Senpai is, oh, wait, that's Megumi Ogata's character from the movie. I didn't think I realized how much that it, that stuff is actually integrated, and I know that eventually that character, like, comes into Jujutsu Kaisen's stuff proper after whatever the anime has adapted. So, yeah, obviously, like, they, it's a thing where they kind of need to do the Zero movie based on, like, things I have heard about where the plot goes. Like, all of that is super important to the main plot of Jujutsu Kaisen, which is kind of like a weird setup um, for manga. Like, that whole dynamic's pretty unusual. They basically had two routes they could go during the anime, which was, does the anime just start with four episodes with a different protagonist and then jump ahead several years and have a new protagonist? That would be a very weird way to do yes, a season of TV. Bizarre. Or do this, or do like an OVA or whatever. And I, they ultimately went kind of the Demon Slayer route of season and then big expensive movie. And I think that's mm -hmm. I like I like this route where the big expensive yeah. movie is actually part of the main story. That's that's good stuff. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, but Sean, I do I I we have some time before we're going to be watching another big Gundam show. So I'm kind of on an anime kick. What's the next anime I should watch? That's there is a lot of options. I've been thinking yeah. about different like ones that have been on my to-do list. Like Attack on Titan is wrapping up, and I've been mm -hmm. thinking about diving in and, and running through Attack on Titan, which is a long show at this point, but not a crazy long show. It's like 80 episodes. Yeah, I've only ever watched the first season of Attack on Titan, mostly because I've just been waiting for it to wrap up. Because um, that first season, particularly the first half of the first season, is really good. It gets a little bit rough around the middle, mostly for like production stuff more than story stuff, because they kind of were running out of time and budget. That's probably fixed now, because um, that's the kind of stuff that gets fixed in Blu-ray releases and everything. Um, but then it got really good at the end of the first season also. Yeah, like Attack on Titan's good. Like I guess it like the, the depends on like what kind of thing you're looking for. If you're looking for like action shonen type stuff, or if you want to do like like try other genres because there's obviously there's a million th things. <laughs> there's a lot of anime. There's uh, a lot of anime, and, and I've watched a lot of it. Yeah, no, I am trying to think of like, and you know what is relevant to some of my like research interests and stuff too. Um, but there's a lot. I mean, I also at some point, and I might wait until it's finished. I want to watch the Dragon Quest show that Toei is doing, mm -hmm. which is based on that that manga um, that's been finished for a long time. It's kind of a classic manga now. Um, there's there's lots on my to do list. You know, um, I've got a lot of like little funny shows that are just have always been sitting on my watch list because you've described it like Polar Bear Cafe or mm -hmm. something like that. Yes. That show. So. I've I've been thinking about Polar Bear Cafe. That I think I want to rewatch that show. It's it's so good. It's such it's the most pleasant show in the world. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of 
like a, a show I didn't think I talked about on the podcast, but is is quite good. It's it's very recent. Is a show called Odd Taxi. Um, that's a very mm. weird anime. Um, but it it stars Hanai Natsuki. Um, voices uh this like walrus taxi driver. Um, and it's sort of a. <laughs> I don't know how to really like describe the plot. I mean, it, it, so it takes place in a sort of world where everyone is a cartoon animal. Um, but the main plot is like waffles between like kind of comedic absurdity and like weirdly kind of grim and realistic crime drama. Um, because the Ken Waller's taxi driver ends up, you know, um, picking up different characters in his cab and ends up kind of embroiled in a weird sort of like criminal conspiracy. Um, that involves some of his friends and other like people who have been in the cab. Um, it's a very weird um, series, and it's very unique stylistically. That that would be a fun one um, to yes. watch. There's a bunch I'm probably just going to like download on my iPad while I'm on this trip. You know, um, like Violet Evergarden. I'm going to watch, but I want to watch that on like my TV at home because it's short and it's yeah know, beautiful. The, yeah, that's. Yeah, that's not a good show to watch and do like a trip with your family because no. you'll just be like you'll be out like visiting some historical thing in New Orleans, and then all of a sudden it'll remind you of an episode of Violet Evergarden, and you'll just start crying in a corner. It's like, <laughs> oh god, it's like it makes you feel too much. Um, yeah, uh, obviously JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. At some point, I need to do the full dive on. That's a that's a sizable show at this point. Yes, um, but I know the yeah. current season is is airing right now, or or the first half was out on Netflix or something. So, yeah, I've been I've been scrolling through uh, some of my watch list stuff on Crunchyroll to think of other recommendations. Here's a good one. This is only a 12 episode show, um, but it's 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 Mecca. So I think it'll, it'll clearly be in your interest is SSSS Gridman. Um, I've heard about this. Yeah. Gridman is a great show. It's sort of like a reboot of an old um, Sentai like Mecca kind of uh, show from, I think, like the 80s. Uh, but it's very good. It's got a lot of kind of like Eva kind of DNA in it. Like not in terms of like the creepy stuff, but more just the slightly more experimental storytelling. Um, and yeah. yeah, Gridman is a really good one. Nice. Anyway, I, I didn't mean to turn this into a full like anime segment. Although I will say Crunchyroll had a pretty big relaunch recently, which is interesting. You know, because mm -hmm. they got the full Funimation catalog in there. Um, they also, I had been watching Crunchyroll through Verve which was the platform that when Crunchyroll was owned by Warner Media had a bunch of the other like Warner Media brands like Boomerang and Rooster Teeth on there and that's all being broken up because Crunchyroll is owned by Sony now so Verve like gave everyone like there was this big transition in Verve like gave everyone, here's 60 days on Crunchyroll Premium go over there we're shutting this thing down basically um, which I only ever started using Verve because it allowed you to download uh, episodes so you could watch them offline when I was on flights and stuff um, and they finally added that to Crunchyroll at the like $10 level. So mm -hmm. I was happy to go back over to, to Crunchyroll. And I mean, it was all the same content, just with more. Now they have like dubs for everything, which is crazy because of all the Funimation yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, because now they, they're fully integrating all the stuff for it. And after Sony bought Funimation, so yeah, so there's a, which is nice for me just because like that was always annoying to have to up a like Funimation subscription once or twice a year to watch the couple of shows that they had streaming that uh like only they had um so it's nice to simplify yeah. that a little bit uh less less random streaming services to keep track of it's uh it's definitely crunchyroll is by far the most comprehensive streaming service if there's a certain thing you like which is anime there's no other like if you like like american tv that means you need like seven different services you yes. know <laughs> if you like japanese tv here you go 
yeah, it is. It is nice to have niche interests because it means that you oh, there's like going to be one or two things that cater to your niche interests, so you get to ignore everything else. It's very good. I uh, I anyway, my my watch list is long. These are all things I'm thinking about. You guys don't need to care about this. Let's move on and talk about Elden Ring, Sean. We've tackled this game from a couple different directions so far, but I mean, should we just start by talking about what have what have you done in the last week of this crazy ass game? Yeah. Uh god. What is so I think last week I was um right before the General Radon stuff. Like I had I had started exploring the Kaled Waste because I was halfway through um Ronnie's quest line. Um and and you get and as part of that quest line, like you can only proceed um once you've you have to get to the area that you can only unlock after you you've uh, defeated General Radon. So I beat General Radon. I explored the area you talked about that you're um you're currently exploring all like that underground city um which that shit's fucking crazy and that's fun because that that area is definitely like higher level than some of the other areas uh-huh um, so so like it means that it's it was very harrowing but then you come out of it and you're buffed the fuck up and you've got a bunch of good equipment and you're leveled up um and so then like tackling some of the other areas and sort of main part of the game or whatever uh it becomes a lot easier because i so i did all that came out finished ronnie's quest line all of that um like i think i like other souls games they this clearly has the same setup of there are multiple different endings and the main way you get different endings is by completing a side quest chain that then will give you an item at the end that presumably there is some choice at the end of the game there you use the item this is like bloodborne did that most of the souls games did that Sekiro did that um, and so Ronnie's quest line is one that does that, and I liked it a lot. So I think that's probably the ending I'll go for whenever I get to the end of the game. Um, and then I've, I've, and then basically I finished up exploring the rest of like the sort of first part of the game. Like I, I mean, it feels like it's like the vast chunk of the game world, but you know, your initial goal is to get to the Lindell Royal Capital and all of that um and then after you go there there's like a, another goal that is given to you that that is what unlocks like the more northerly area but so and i've only like put my toe dipped my toe into the the stuff beyond the royal capital uh, but it doesn't seem like it's not like here's another whole giant map there is more area up there <laughs> but it's not like it's not as much as i was almost worried about because it's like there's no way this game can have like another half of the map revealed or something but there is some more stuff past there um and so that's nice. kind of where i am as i've wrapped up the volcano manor i've wrapped up the lindell royal capital um and all that kind of first wave of the story leading up through all that stuff and have started on what feels like maybe is the last third or so of the game or last fourth something like that interesting yeah i keep hearing people say volcano manor and i have no idea what that is but i'm excited to see it it sounds cool yeah it's um, kind of like the area that's in the northwestern corner of okay. uh, the map yeah there's a couple of ways you can either access it access it through the liurnia area or there's a way to get it from the plateau or whatever that where the capital is because when we talked last week i was about to go tackle carrion manor and i did that yes and so I have been on Ronnie's quest line basically all week because it's it's so funny because there is an area in 
uh, sort of the eastern part of Liernia, where there's this cool tower that's sort of like down in an area. You have to kind of mm-hmm. loop around and get down there. And you go in there, and there's like a sorcerer you fight and all this stuff. Yep. But then you kind of get to the end, and there's nothing you can do. But there's this one like thing in the in the air that you can see. Like, well, if that came down a little, I could get up there. And I was kind of confused. So I finally looked it up, and I'm like, is there something I'm missing in here? And I just saw something about like. This will involve Ronnie's questline, and I'm like, "Oh, so this is a bigger thing." And now I'm realizing how much fucking bigger it is. It's hilarious that like the the series of adventures I've been on, out of that. But yeah, so I went to the Carrion Manor. That whole part is really cool. Met the the part beyond the Carrion Manor is amazing, and then the Ronnie questline is my favorite narrative stuff yeah. in the game so far. It's all the like Blythe and the other characters you meet, like E.G., are very cool. Um, I love their Celavis who is just the meanest bastard, and I love all the stuff that comes off of him. It winds up roping in a bunch of the other NPCs from like the Round Table Hold and all of this stuff. Yep. So there's so much cool narrative content that comes out of that. But basically that is what sort of loops you into the General Radon stuff if you, if you hadn't done it already. Um, so I did beat General Radon a couple of nights ago, and then I've been in Nokran, the Eternal City, and that's sort of where I am right now. Um, and I've done a couple other things on the side, including I had a very funny day where there is this one area I've been using for grinding that is in the absolute like northeast of the of the Kalid section. It's where mm-hmm. you go turn in your dark route. I'll just yes. say that. Um, and mm-hmm. there is there's a bunch of enemies there, just normal you know spawning enemies that give like 1100 runes so they're a very good place like if i'm like eh, i have like 40,000 runes and i need 41,000 to level up and i'm about to go fight a boss let's go over there and get a thousand runes like that kind of thing yeah you know um but there is also there there is that area has one big boss up on the steps who's a big guy who like kills you in one hit and is very hard to fight and then there's a dragon uh who is one of the harder dragons in the game to fight and I basically figured out how to cheese both of those bosses, and they both gave like eighty thousand runes. It yeah. was very funny. One of them was uh, the, the the big like knight guy you fight. Basically, I fought him in such a way that he jumped off the map and killed himself. And the dragon, I went with the old school. Let's find a place where I can hit him with arrows, and he can't hit me with fire. And uh, classic, classic, very fun. It it definitely made going and grinding in that area a little easier, and I got a shit ton of runes, and it was very funny. And I did a lot of this because, Sean, in all of this, I have been replaying, like, remaking my build a little bit, and I poured a bunch of points into Faith and Arcane so I could use some of my dragon magic, yeah. which has been... I mean, it's not practical for most situations. <laughs> no. But... It, it's very some, over the top. It's very over the top, but it's very cool, and I will say... The Radon fight, which is we're going to talk about, it's amazing. Yeah. It's very hard. And the way I ultimately unlocked, figured out how to do it, was using the dragon scarlet rot breath that I got um, from one of the dragon hearts after killing one of the dragons in Kaelid. And that basically killed him for me while I was running around. It was very fun. So the dragon breath has definitely come in handy. Uh, and that's sort of that's been the series of adventures I've been on this week with other you know random detours because this game takes you all over the place. Yeah, no, yeah, that that's all very good because because that's yeah because it sounds like like your character build is is pretty similar to mine because yeah I've I've leaned pretty hard into faith in arcane because at this point it, it's like really I mean my character's over level a hundred at this point and I'm at like level ninety so yeah yeah like it's something of where I don't think I've ever gotten a character level this high in another Souls game uh, because there's just like there's so much more stuff in in Elden Ring 
Um, and at that point, once your level's that high, you know, like I've particularly with like some of like the gear I have on, and if I have uh, I've popped a rune arc or whatever, and I'm using one of the great runes, like my most of my major stats like vitality and dexterity are at what it's called like the soft cap, where it starts becoming diminishing returns to continue to invest in the same stat past like 40 and 50 for most of them. It starts becoming not entirely like it still gives you some bonus, but it's not the most like um, useful way to spend a lot of those points. And so like I've now been at the soft cap on a bunch of those main stats I had been investing in for a while. So yeah, so now like my uh, faith in arcane stats are like in the high 20s uh basically i'm nowhere so, near so, that <laughs> yeah so because because i've been i mean i've mostly been investing in those since almost since like the last podcast it's been like almost the entire last week um has been a little bit of topping off those for those set of core kind of core stats i had for my class and now investing in this in this magic stuff and it's by far the most magic i've ever used um in a souls game and it is very fun uh I, there's a couple of major spells i use i talked about the blood flame blade um, last time, which is a very fun enchantment uh, if you're using katanas, so you do bleeding damage anyways, and it's just an enchantment that makes you do more bleed damage. Um, and then another one that I'm having a huge amount of fun with is called Lightning Spear. I think you you buy it from uh, Brother Corrin, the main like monk guy, uh, and it's the most like Zeus shit in the world. It's basically you just like summon a fucking full on bolt of lightning in your hand and just chuck it at motherfuckers. Um, and it does, particularly at this point where my character is quite leveled up, it does a lot of damage. It casts very quickly. Um, and most importantly, it just looks incredibly cool, um, especially because you can use it while on horseback. So I've definitely gotten to the habit of, for, for um, some enemies, like some dragons and other enemies that um, have like really big, like massive swinging attacks that I uh, that are hard to avoid if you're fighting them on horseback. I've kind of adopted the strategy of mostly summoning a guy that kind of can drag their attention and then run around on a horse and just throw lightning bolts from on the back of a horse. And That's it pretty feels, cool. <laughs> it feels super fucking cool uh, whenever I do it. And then, of course, I am occasionally using my crazy dragon magic and stuff like that to just set everything on fire. Like, there are many scenarios where it feels like the dragon magic, like, works that well because it's clearly designed mostly for large groups of enemies and you can kill large groups of enemies very quickly. But against individual enemies, it's a little bit impractical because of the, how much long it takes to cast. But every once in a while, you run into a scenario where it's like, oh, wait, I know exactly what to do here. And then you just summon a giant dragon head and vomit fucking, like, burning blue fire on them and watch everything explode and die uh and that is very fun it is very fun i i have not gone nearly as deep on the faith stuff as you have it sounds like although i've been thinking about just going in and respecking because i think i've unlocked mm -hmm. that and um pulling out some like because i have a lot of points in both strength and dexterity and that's redundant i realized I, yeah. I think i can just go with dexterity um and yeah i might put some more in faith in arcane and do some of that stuff because it is fun and it would it would kind of um you know change up my playstyle a little bit but i did take one of your suggestions and i did take my wakizashi and put that in my left hand so i have that in my uchigatana and that is a very fun dual wielding yeah. setup that i've been using a lot i have basically not used a shield in like two weeks on this game mm -hmm. which is very different but very fun i think miyazaki would be would be proud because you know given what he did with like bloodborne and stuff you know shields sometimes it's good to just throw those away and be dexterous yeah it's it's something that's just nice about elden ring's design is because there's so much 
like content in the game that isn't the like brutally difficult stuff that is like basically to whatever your level is right because the dark souls games are designed such that while there's a little bit of option to where you go in general you're going from one area to the next in a fairly linear fashion so that everything is more or less designed to be about the level is appropriate for however much souls you would have gotten playing the game normally to that point whereas with elden ring you know, I, I was over level 100 by the time I finally bothered to go to that area that's at the south of the map. That is, once I got there, it's like, <laughs> oh, this is designed for you to be here, like, at the very beginning of the game. All the stuff there is scaled to, like, if you, instead of going north to Stormvale Castle and fighting Margit and all that stuff, if you went south, it's easier than any of the stuff near Stormvale Castle. So going there when I was, like, over level 100 and throwing lightning bolts and breathing fire dragon... <laughs> Um, and all that shit, it's like, I just absolutely crushed that area. But it was great because, you know, that's the kind of thing that you would never be able to do in another one of these games because it's just, they're not designed that way. But that was like, that was where I sort of took that opportunity to experiment with a bunch of the spells and incantations and stuff I picked up. And I think that's where I first like realized, oh, this lightning spear spell is like really useful and it's really good and it's easy to incorporate into the rest of my moveset. Um, and that's something I very much enjoyed with Elden Ring. And we talked about some last um, week is that the design is so open. It's way more forgiving to you experimenting with different play styles in a way that I've, I'm now like very comfortable. Like I just don't even have a shield equipped as an option because I use it so infrequently that I realized it was just more practical at a certain point to get it out of my left hand rotation. So it's just my left hand weapon and my like dragon communion seal that I use to cast spells. Um, and, and I have never played a main Souls game without having a shield because it was such an ingrained part and it always felt like I always wanted to be there as a backup and at this point I'm like, I don't need the backup because I've played enough with this non-shield playstyle in this game that it's just I don't need it anymore and that luxury of sort of the openness of the design is really cool. It definitely is, because I've done the same thing. I have it, you know, I haven't, like, put the shield away in the chest. I have it, and sometimes I've broken it out with, like, an enemy that I'm like, I'm not sure how to do this, let's try it with the shield. And there's that new, we haven't even talked about this, that this is an addition. I don't know if this was in Dark Souls 3, and maybe I missed it, but where the shield, you can get hit with it, and then you can do the the big swipe That's on it. Yeah. That's new. That's yeah. new, yeah. Because it's not, like, the parry. The parry is still in there if you want to do that. But the, the, the useless parry from old Dark Souls games. Yeah. Um, not, the, not the super cool parry from Sekiro that is, like, the, the, the heart and soul of that game. Um, no. So, and sometimes, like, that's helped. But mostly, like, I'll put the shield back on and try to, like, no, I'm going to get two swords out and, and just jump around and just cut this guy until he bleeds to death, you know? Um, or I'll do some, some little magic things on the side. So... It's been fun, and like it is because the the map is so big, and there's so many areas, and you get to know it very well. I have places I go where like, oh, this is an interesting weapon. I'm gonna go here to test this out, you know, mm -hmm. and that's been fun. But yeah, it's um, you know, the and and I will say I did hit last night. Finally beat them this morning. The first boss in this game that I thought was like, it was it was this by far the hardest boss I fought in this game. Maybe one of the hardest in all of the Souls series. It was for me it was the Valiant Gargoyles in Nokrin. I don't know if they were hard for anyone else. They were for whatever reason. Oh, yeah, after yeah. fighting Radon and everything, they kicked my fucking ass. They're not required by any means, but um, that was one that like I could I was banging that was the, and that was honestly maybe the first boss in this game. I kind of was like, 
yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about this design because it, it stacks so many things on top of you that I do think it relies a little bit on luck more than I would like. Yeah, um, that's the one where they start, they have like a poison attack, right? Where yes. they kind of like vomit up poison gas. Yeah, that was the part of that fight that I thought was like, mm, this this attack is like annoying in a way that is like hard to tell when or how it's going to hit you. And so it's like not particularly visible. Um, Especially once yeah. there's two of them and like, there's there's a lot of like i mean and all of the bosses and souls have certain levels of like you know when are they going to do what attack is part of like the chemistry equation that you're playing with but some of it was just stuff that like i cannot i like i found like i had found a good way to beat them pretty early on in the fight and it was just waiting for the conditions to line up uh-huh, <laughs> that it worked yeah. for me um but yeah i have i will say been running around in general radon's armor because i mm-hmm. saw that after i beat him and i bought it because i had a bunch of souls and I was like, this is cool as shit. And I also got a talisman around that time that raised my equip load. So I can still have a medium roll while having that crazy ass armor on. And it's very fun because you look goofy and awesome. Yeah. For my character right now, in terms of my armor and stuff, I have I have fully leaned into the edgelord, anime edgelord nature <laughs> of the character I've made. Um, because if you continue the Ronnie's quest line, eventually you can unlock um, Blythe's armor. Um, which Blythe's character in in the Ronnie subquest stuff, his character is his design is just what if we took the Berserker armor from the main character in Berserk and instead of having the helmet just look like a wolf head, what if it literally was a wolf man's head? Because it is yes. the most direct. <laughs> this is just guts the main character from Berserk I, that has been in any of the Dark Souls games, um, and I love it. Uh, he's got like a big wolf pelt cloak and stuff on the back, and it's this big kind of like spiky black plate mail. So I have that on. Um, and then I have a black hood as the helmet, um, and just because I think it looks really cool and edgelordy. And then if you eat a bunch of dragon hearts, eventually your eyes start becoming dragon eyes, so they like glow yellow, and it looks I didn't like know you're, that. Yeah, I, you have to buy up quite a few of the dragon spells for it to happen to you. And from my understanding, you can turn it off if you go to the places um where you can change the cosmetics of your character um but i was like i'm leaning into this all the way um i like i actually went into the character editor thing because you can go to ranala who is also who you can go to to uh respect your character one thing you can do there is change the way your character looks and i put on like super dark baggy eyes like almost like robert pattinson's like makeup in batman or something is kind of what it looks like and like the very deep sunken in eyes with these like Sith looking yellow irises that glow in the dark. Um, I've got the black hood on. Um, I've got my blood flame blade in my blood magic and my dragon magic. And I have moved on from my Uchigatana and Wakizashi pair to I've moved my Uchigatana into the offhand hand because I have found a different katana called the Nagakiba, which means the, the long fang. Um, which you get for a different quest line you can find. And it's basically a katana, but it's like Sephiroth's. It's just like stupidly, massively oh huge. Um, <laughs> it's so big that like the sheath that is on the side of the character you equip that weapon just clips through everything in the environment. Like if I'm just standing there, like about half of the sheath is just like clipping through the ground. Um, and, it, and particularly on the horse uh, the the really long katana is incredibly useful because because it's got a very big hitbox and so now I've got fucking Sephiroth's sword in my main hand I've got a normal katana in my left hand um, when I'm in the middle of a fight my Sephiroth sword is glowing with like this scarlet red blood fire um, and I'm turning into a dragon <laughs> man and shooting dragon fire at people and it is the most edge lord character I think I have ever made in a video game and I fucking love it 
So I take it you and I are in the same camp on armor in Dark Souls game that we care more about the cosmetics than the stats. Yes, yeah, one hundred percent. Like, like I care about the stats in so much as like I want to make sure I at least have that medium roll. Um, but other than that, like you know, I could fit put on a helmet that's a lot better than this black hood. But I want the fucking black hood because it looks really good. I'm I'm very much that way now. For a while in my playthrough, my favorite helmet did line up with my with the one that was the best stats. I have this helmet that I got really early on and i forget where i got it but it's basically a stone like wolf head that mm -hmm. you can put yeah. on and it's heavy but it's not too heavy and it it's just got crazy stats so i use it all the time and it covers your face but i also found it funny like i was basically thinking my character was like inosuke from demon slayer just running mm -hmm. around with this crazy wolf head on in inosuke's case obviously it's a boar head but yes um and i was having fun because i would be having like a serious conversation with ronnie or something and it would be like i would have this fucking wolf head on and it would be making me laugh and now i've got radon's helmet which has the big flowing like red hair mm -hmm. off the back and it's got the big like death cape anyway i love this kind of stuff yeah the i know you can really like you know min max your stats on all of this stuff but like the truth of the matter is most bosses will kill you in a couple of hits so i care more about moving and all of that stuff and looking cool yeah i feel like armor is one of those things that unless it's you're going for the absolutely heaviest armor in the game at which point you have to like build your entire character around even just being able to wear that shit and move um it's kind of useless in souls games it's like it's <laughs> unless you're going super hardcore on it the amount it mitigates damage is so minor that it's it's you're it's going to do enough damage that you have to fucking drink an estes flask either way of uh, is like right. at that point just you know put whatever on you think that makes your character look really cool yeah it's why sometimes i just strip naked in the game and roll around really fast mm -hmm. and it's fun so anyway um, which is a tried and true strategy. I beat uh, a couple of there's there's some heavies in Nokrin that are like they don't respawn, but they're not bosses. They're the big like knights um, uh -huh, who are yeah. very hard to beat. Those are ones yeah. where I like stripping everything off and being able to roll fast was what allowed me to kill their asses. So anyway, um, loving this game. But Sean, I think we need to talk about General Radon and that whole uh -huh. side of things because I think it's one of the best boss fights that yeah. they've ever had in a Souls game. And I think it is one of the best triumphs of FromSoft's general approach to narrative and world building because of how it combines all these disparate threads that you will mostly have encountered by chance in Elden Ring, not by go here to this waypoint and do this. Yeah. Including like we talked about our boy Alexander the 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 pot guy. Iron What's Fist. this? Yeah. I yeah. Iron Fist Alexander, who there's nothing indicating to go find Iron Fist Alexander. It's just if you ride past this place, he's yelling for help. And it's a huge part of that entire thing. You could totally go do Radon without meeting Blythe. But it's a lot cooler if you've gone through all of that and then he's running into combat with you. Yeah. Um, it's one of the most epic, cool things I've ever seen in a video game. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's, it is definitely, I think, it's my favorite boss fight I've seen so far in Elden Ring. And it's like amongst the best boss fights in any of the, uh, the From Software games. And it, and it leverages, like, the particular things that Elden Ring has that is different from the other Souls games so effectively. And some of it is exactly what you're talking about of, like, it feels narratively, and obviously this all depends on the order you play things in and stuff like that, um, but it feels narratively like this big culmination of these different weird disparate elements. And there's probably, like, other things that maybe, like, you and I haven't encountered that would play into Radon in that area, because it feels like it's very modular, 
um, that we just wouldn't even know about. Um, but it all feels natural, I imagine, like any format you tackle it in. Um, but yeah, having Blythe there, having uh, Alexander Iron Fist there, um, and just the whole thing of coming into the castle um, and the like, the weird chanting that's the uh, plays there in this like the this guy who announces this whole tournament or whatever to kill General Radon and the festival piece, the yeah. yeah the festival of champions and piecing together everything that's happened and that and like you know and there's a lot of this stuff that I still don't really know uh but in full and I feel like there are some of the, like more details about characters like Melania will be revealed in the northern areas of the game um, but there's all the background of General Radon's like campaign against Melania, who's caused the Scarlet Rot, and um, you know he's been corrupted or like is like dying and being decayed by this Scarlet Rot, um, and all of that stuff wrapping into it as well, um, culminating in this giant boss fight where it leverages Elden Ring's like reliance on summoning being like a normal, fully integrated part of the game design, which none of the other Souls games have ever like really leaned into that aspect um and then also having this massive giant battlefield that allows you to use your horse and so it incorporates all the horse combat because the boss is on a horse as well um and it just creates this giant ridiculous epic crazy fight where you're summoning in all these random people some of whom you know like alexander some of whom you're like i don't know who the fuck this dude is but i guess he'll help me out um and charging this a uh, weird general on the sad little horse uh, uh, with the lore on that is amazing. <laughs> the lore on that horse is so good. It's it's the best the best lore for a horse I've ever seen in the game. But um, you charging him in, in with this whole army like it's fucking D-Day or some shit. Um, it's, <laughs> it is one of the coolest boss fights I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean it is. And, and the thing is, when I started it and I realized what they were going for, I was in the back of my head, I'm like... Oh, this is so cool! Is but is this going to be more of a gimmick fight, or is this going to be a proper? And then I died, and I'm like, oh no, this is a proper fucking FromSoft fight because it's it's not the hardest boss fight in a FromSoft game, or even in Elden Ring, I don't think. But it's very hard. Yeah. It's very demanding, and but also I think it's super rewarding in that, in in the way a lot of these fights are. Once I figured out the combination of tools I had on hand that would allow me to pull this off, I did it pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and for me, it was. Basically, going in with um, enough Estus flasks just because he can take down a lot of your health and it can be a long fight, but also having a flask so I could restore my faith if I needed. To, if so, for one big restore, because there were two things I was going to use faith for, which was two bursts of the dragon rot breath. Once in the first phase, once in the second phase, and then the rot took him down more than any of my hits, even. And it was more about running around and like keeping my allies up and that sort of thing, but. What a cool epic fight. And yeah, using the horse and like making the horse a really like integral part of the entire battle, having this just massive field where like attacks are going so far. Um, it's a it's such a cool design. And then the whole sense of pacing and culmination of it, of you have heard about Radon at this point, if you played it like us, from so many different corners of the world. And you've been sent there now on this quest from Ronnie where you've learned a, a lot more about it and like what, you know, that he is literally holding this piece of the stars back and all of this crazy stuff, right? Yeah. And then you go in with all of these allies and there's a big, you know, festival going on and you're running up the beach and it is just the most epic shit ever. Um, and when you beat it, you get one of the coolest cutscenes they've ever done in one of these games. Um, Man Alive, it is one of the triumphs of i think their entire approach to game design 
Yeah, it's it is really amazing, and yes, and then in the the comet then striking uh, in the forest or whatever, and going over there, and it's like, like it's legit, like it has just like ripped a giant hole in the map. It makes me really want to like load up a new character or something and just go see what the fuck was here because I knew I explored that area, and I assume there must not be anything super important in that chunk. Um, but it is, it is like funny to just be like, oh fuck, like if there was something there, it's definitely not now because there's just a giant fucking crater that you can see from basically anywhere else in the map. If you look over there, you can see, it almost looks like shit, like Genshin Impact likes to do this with big floating rocks and yes. this like massive crater. Um, yeah, it is, it is, it's one of my favorite things I've done in Elden Ring is that whole boss fight and all the, the story around it. And I did use Radon's armor for a while. Um, until I unlocked Blythe's armor later in the quest line, uh, because yeah. Radon's armor is very cool, and he was very cool, and I felt like I gotta re pay respects to the man um, yes. by wearing his big cool He's... cape and everything. Because I because also, also we need to just talk about Kaelid in general because that uh -huh. whole area is wild, but yeah. also the 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 keep his his castle, you know, Redmain Castle, is such an interesting thing because if you've played any other FromSoft games in hell, even if you've only played Elden Ring, you've been to several castles at this point. And it's not the normal FromSoft castle because it's mostly empty and it's mostly about atmosphere and sort of mood and a general eeriness. There's a couple of enemies, but there's no like giant overriding threats. It's quiet and it's empty because all the soldiers are out trying to fight in the Kaled Wastes and mostly dying. And then you get there and it's it's you get to the end and then you're you're preparing for this festival. So it's mostly just kind of a staging ground. And it just builds the hype for the fight in such cool ways. Yeah, and and I think one of the things I love about the Kaled Waste is how much the like how much of the just like the narrative of that place is just like built into the world and the way it feels. And it's easily my favorite poison swamp type area yes. um from software has ever done. And there are a lot of poison swamps in, in the From Software games, and there are a lot of poison swamps in Elden Ring. There's always there's always another poison swamp. You may think you've seen all the poison swamps. I'm, no. I'm sure that there will be like two or three more poison swamps before I'm done. Um, but there's something about Kaelid Waste, partially just because it allows you to use your horse so you can just get around. Um, and so it's less of a hassle in a gameplay sense. But just the real feeling of just like despair and loss there, that this whole area is completely gone. Um, and and all the soldiers are there, like, on the edge. Of, you know, it's like as you're coming in and you see these, like, molten walls built up of, like, different stages in camps of soldiers with fire magic and big, like, the big crazy fire-breathing chariot things and all that as they're trying to just, like, burn everything else to try to keep the, the rot from spreading. And there's these roving bands of corpses going around the roads and stuff like that like it's just this incredibly harrowing area um and for a long time i had assumed that at the center of that area was going to be like a dungeon and that's where radon was going to be um but there isn't a dungeon there like it's just like it, it is just what it is on the surface like it's a big swamp and in the middle is a like general or whoever in radon's army that you can fight as a mini boss um that's a that's a very cool fight um but yeah, there's just something about that entire area and the story it tells about this conflict that seems to just have like ended without any real resolution because everything is dead, like everything lost um, in this battle. And Radon is like barely clinging on to life and sort of sanity and has to be basically put down because he's basically half dead and just 
cursed to wander, I think is what his uh, description on his armor says as he's being eaten away by the Scarlet Rot. Um, the entire narrative tone and feel of that area is so thick and palpable um, in a way that I think is like exemplary of like the best kind of storytelling that From Software does. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's it's not just my favorite, you know, Poison Swamp area, but of any of, and they're usually Poison Swamps, but of the, like, the really mean areas of a uh-huh. FromSoft game, you know? Um, usually built around a Poison Swamp, but not always. And just this one, and I think it's because there's so many ways the game sends you to Kaled, yeah. but also lets you know this is sort of a later game area. You're not going to master it when you're level 10 or something, because the first time I got sent to Kaled... I was very low level. You were much lower level even. You've talked yeah. about that whole, you know, story. Because it's a it's a really hard area. It's a really challenging and like mean, but like it's mean in such a fascinating way that is so thick with atmosphere, literally, because the sky is red and the, you know, soil is, you know, full of iron and it's just, you know, everything's on fire and you've got those walls that have like dragon fire burning them mm-hmm. and things like that. And there's just all sorts of enemies. Uh, there's the big like fucking dog dinosaurs i don't know what to call them other than that yeah they're like what if you had a dog and like a giant baby chicken and you fuse them together like they've got these <laughs> yes. giant heads that they use to stupidly try to headbutt you and the thing i love about those dogs is like they're particularly when you encounter them when you're level fucking eight or something they're utterly terrifying but they're also surprisingly easy enemies to take care of yes particularly if you have a shield um but yeah, you've got those. They're just like running around eating shit up. You've got the big fucked up weird crow thingies. Um, I love those. You've yeah. got, and then like also like all of the red main castle soldiers have come up with crazy things like the big contraptions they're in that shoot fire out of like yeah. the big green head, and you have to go around to the back to kill the little like soldier uh, controlling it, like he's the fucking Wizard of Oz. Uh-huh. I love those things. There's several like forts to do, and some there's some really cool stuff there. But like Kaled was this place where I was sent there early, came back, but I'd been kind of I kind of had kept going back there because there was so much cool stuff I was exploring and trying to find. And there's this whole like under area that has this big chasm leading up to this Colosseum where there's nothing there yet. I think a lot of people have been suspecting what's going to be there eventually. But the only way to get down there was eventually going through the Siofra River well, and that's how I figured out all of that stuff. So I had spent a lot of time in Kaled in like different bursts and every time I would come back I would understand more about it and it would be so fun. But the final push I made where I went all the way to Redmain Castle, that part is so cool because that's where you have like the the, the soldiers are all fighting the big dog chicken guys mm-hmm. who are fighting other enemies and like there's just this big like just war going on basically that you're running through. And I had a very fun moment of like realizing this game is a little bit of a chemistry set where I was riding on torrent and I had some of the dog I got some of the dogs to start chasing me and I led them towards where all the soldiers were and I just created this giant battle between all of them where they're all fighting and killing each other and I'm just standing back collecting all of the runes while they do it um it was very fun yeah the, the one of my favorite things in the game in, in any video game is having enemies be able to fight each other like ever since the original doom let you get imps and shotgun zombies to fight each other by tricking them to hit one another and then it triggers their ai um getting enemies to fight each other in video games has always been one of the coolest things to do um and yeah it, it is definitely a thing that uh elden ring does a lot more of than other souls games like you would run into that occasionally in another soul game and like Sekudo does it a little bit more than some of the others um but here you can actually legitimately like weaponize it as a tactic to clear out certain areas which is really really fun yeah absolutely 
So, you know, and I also did in Caleb, there's the whole city of sorcery, Celia. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, and I finally went through all of that stuff, too, which leads you all the way up to the, like, tallest part of the Caleb map where you're up on the mountain and have all of that stuff. And there's this whole quest line with this woman named Melania or something, um, who you're... Mm-hmm. Millicent, yeah, Millicent, I forget. Yeah, Millicent. Yeah, um, and there's this guy in a shack you talk to, and there's there's uh, there's there's got to be something more with that later that I haven't there found because it's okay. Um, but that was super cool too. That that because that city of sorcery was one of the first things I found when I went to Caled. Got my ass kicked and ran away very hard. Um, but when I went back, I was ready to fight those motherfuckers because it's a bunch of like ghosts that come in and out and use sorcery, and I kicked their asses. Yeah, and they're like like the whole lore of Selenia is that it's like a a city of like like assassin sorcerers. So they've got a bunch of like invisibility magic and stuff that you can get if you explore that area. That I can't use because it's all intelligence. Um, but that's like fun. Because uh, yeah, they 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 I I generally in a game like this I would be annoyed by teleporting enemies. But there's something fun about like the teleporting glass cannon type enemy where they basically go down in one hit. Um, but they just like kind of teleport around and try to pepper you with shit, um, and then you just stab them in the face of the sword and they're dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and all the the stuff with that and Millicent, like this is definitely of of the From Software games, like particularly of the Souls variety of From Software games. This is the best stuff in terms of like NPCs in the open world and little side quests, but like little side quests and big side quests, like with the Ronnie stuff being by far the biggest. But there are several like quite sizable quest chains uh in elden ring that is the size of you know like it'll it, it takes you like maybe eight to ten hours to clear like the entire ronnie thing if you sort of mainline it it's like that's the size of a whole video game um and and there are several quest lines that are several hours long and usually they're kind of like chunked up in such a way that you're not going to encounter it all in one go because you'll have to go to a new area and encounter those characters um but it is a something particularly like at the point i'm in now like a little bit after the royal capital like you start to see some of that stuff kind of full like ramping up or like like entering like what feels like it's kind of last phase if you've been following a bunch of those and that's extremely satisfying because i love all the little characters you run into and all the little pe like the people in that world and their stories um and it's a nice balance between being stuff that is that kind of vague um sort of like mysterious esoteric quality that the from software games traditionally have but it's also more explicable and more followable than a lot of those and there's more just dialogue with actual people um which is something that like the other dark souls games would have a couple lines of dialogue with this dude and you'd run into him here and there um in the world and you have to get a wiki to find any of like the quest past like the first encounter um and here there's a lot of that stuff that if that the game actually kind of tells you hey go here do this you can you can talk to me multiple times to get more and more dialogue and get an actual story um and that's a thing i've been enjoying a lot is actually having in a very sekido-esque way having actual characters with actual story that you progress throughout the game um and your relation to them like shifts and evolves based on where you are in the quest line like that stuff is very satisfying it is a step above um i think the other souls games Oh, totally, yeah. It's Because it still has that same sort of ineffable, weird quality where mm -hmm. no one, everyone talks a little off. The voice acting is weird and bizarre, but also really awesome. 
there's there's so many characters like that I just love. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the characters in Ronnie's questline, for instance, like the guy who becomes one of your new blacksmiths, the big giant yes, uh, EG. EG. He just yeah. he has the coolest speaking voice. I love how he talks about Blythe and just yeah. all of that stuff. And there's characters like that just peppered throughout the world. Yeah, and 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 yeah, they've just like got like good like meaty dialogue, and and you can really learn about them. And yes, like E.G. is one of my favorites, just conceptually. You know, this big, um, crazy giant dude, but is like super articulate, um, and is yes. like you know very concerned about his mistress Ronnie and serving her. Um, and it's just the fact that you've got this character Ronnie, and she has her whole own like supporting cast of characters, like that shit's so good. It is the kind of thing I think I've always wanted the Souls games to lean into more, and it's very satisfying to actually have like real character stuff to follow in these stories, and it's not just like lore dump, lore dump, lore dump, lore dump, which is satisfying in many ways. Um, but I think it becomes a lot more meaningful. You know, like, the fact that Radon is holding back, like, the stars and fate and stuff like that is cool from a lore perspective, but it's rendered way more meaningful when that's connected directly to a thing you're doing with Ronnie and her other characters. And it's like, this is not just a thing in the past that you're uncovering, like, a video game archaeologist. This is a thing that has, like, present impact and real importance for real people living in the current, like, present of when the story takes place. That, to me, just makes all the lore stuff feel way more rich when it, it isn't only historical, it shows how all that historical stuff has meaning to the people living in that world today. Absolutely. So is there anything else you want to talk about with Elden Ring before we move over to other things today? It's a fucking kick-ass game. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I can't stop playing it. I had a very fun moment where I haven't done much of the multiplayer stuff, but I did um, do a little bit of getting summoned into other people's worlds to fight a boss because I've um, gotten used to using a lot of those rune arcs uh, to get like the stat boost or whatever um, with your great runes and I was running out of them so I did a couple of those and there was one that felt so utterly serendipitous where I helped a, a guy fight a boss that was in the royal capital and we completely fucking trounced it like fuck this dude up completely um, killed him and then as he killed as we killed him like perfectly synchronized We've, uh, we both did the Elden Ring gesture of doing the big circle, and it was, like, <laughs> frame fucking perfect. Like, I could, because I had been doing that on all of them because I thought it was very funny um, to just have a weird ghostly specter join you, fuck this dude up with a big crazy Sephiroth sword, and then just do this big circle and then disappear. And the <laughs> fact that this guy, we did it perfectly synchronized um, as if it was planned, uh, that was very satisfying, and that was... Um, basically like the last thing I did playing the game last night uh, and it was like a good 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 feeling to go to bed with is like yes there's some random dude out there in the world or lady who does um, someone out there in the world is perfectly on the same wavelength with me in this game um, and, and you know that I felt a little bit of connectedness to humanity and so that's the thing you can get from Elden Ring also well the multiplayer is a whole thing we should talk about at some point because it's not massively changed from the other games but it's it's always been great and i think like a lot of things in elden ring it brings out what's always been great about the souls formula i just love because i've been doing the same thing you have sean where i use the sort of i forget which finger it one of the many fingers you have and it's the one that kind of puts you in a looking for group queue and like yeah. throws you into someone's world um and those are and that's really fun to just go into someone's world and you have no way to communicate other than you know jumping around and doing emotes right and I remember the first time someone came in and someone was doing an emote, I realized I did not know how to do the emotes yet. I hadn't, like, 
consciously figured that out that it was with the like gestures on the on the mm-hmm. dual shock or on the dual sense and so i just started jumping and then he just started jumping and then we went and killed a wolf while we were jumping like you know it's just stuff like that that's so silly I've always loved all of the messages you get in the world, and they're great in this game, too. This is the first time I've played a Souls game at launch, so there's even more messages than I've seen in the game before. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I love the silliness of all of that. I think it's a kind of multiplayer that fosters positive community in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. because you can't shit-talk people and be a dick, right? I mean, you can kind of be a dick, but the ways you can be a dick are pretty fun, like, you know... It's annoying when you see it too many times, but like, you know, jump off here and it's a big cliff and you go, ah, oh, hardy, har, har, right? But like, that's the most dickish you can be, right? Um, other than that, it's a pretty positive experience and like people go into those groups genuinely wanting to go like help you with the boss and do cool stuff, right? And so yeah. it's, there's, there's, it's there's a whole a... approach to multiplayer that I think is very positive and fun and just silly, you know? Yeah, it, yeah, it, it's, it's just like, it's very good at building a sense of like the broader kind of culture and community of of these games and it's one of the reasons why i think it's important that the games are like difficult to get through is that it breeds the sense of camaraderie of like everyone's in on the joke everyone gets that it's funny you know that like this thing is here or like this enemy is in this like ridiculous spot or or you know like the the cultural things of if you played a bunch of these games of where i i don't think that mimics like fake chests that our enemies are in the game i've not encountered one but you better fucking believe I have hit every single chest before I have opened it because, <laughs> like, I have, you know, you play enough of these games and it's like, I'm never not going to do that. And it's the same thing of, like, there aren't a lot of illusory walls in this game, but there are illusory walls in this game. Um, there are there are fewer than the messages would indicate. Um, yes, people like the messages to say that they're illusory walls. Yeah. But, like, if someone says there's an illusory wall here, even though I know there's, like, a 1% chance that this is a legitimate message... I'm fucking hitting that wall you know i'm i'm not I'm, I'm not better than that um and there's something about that that i just enjoy about the kind of like the culture with like the culture as it's expressed like organically within the game and the game world is always something that's been super fun um and because yeah because i think I've it's really when you do too. troll someone like that what's the worst you're going to do to them? You're going to get them to hit a wall with a sword and then they move yeah. on right mm-hmm. or if you're really stupid you'll jump off the cliff but then you just go back and they don't put your souls at the bottom of the cliff right so you know you're generally fine and usually you can tell if the jumping off the cliff will kill you because there's a bunch of blood stains around it so there's probably a message right in front of it saying liar ahead um yes which i love because you know the how the messages generate in your world is totally random and it basically tells you that there's probably like a thousand messages that are saying, hey, jump over here, treasure below, or whatever. And then there's probably another thousand messages by different people saying liar head <laughs> right in front of that. So it's like, you know, you're probably getting two totally unrelated, try jumping here and liar ahead messages that those two messages weren't connected to each other. There's just enough people doing the same exact jokes. You're just getting those jokes generated <laughs> to you in unique patterns every single time. I love this game, Sean. I love yeah. it very much. But let's talk about something else we love. Let's talk about yes. Gundam. Let's talk Gundam. Hello and welcome to Weekly Soup Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to talk about Mobile Suit Gundam. This time on the show, though, we're not talking about any of that newfangled anime stuff. 
we're going old school, baby. We're talking manga, because we're talking Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, the manga, written by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko on the sort of adaptation of the original series into manga form, but with significant alterations and significant additions, many of those additions being then adapted into the OVA episodes that we already covered. But of course, it felt appropriate to wrap up our discussion of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin by going to the source and talking about the original manga, because it really, uh, it's quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. It is, you know, this is a, a very special episode of Weekly Suit Gundam, because this is our 50th episode. And uh, I will admit, when we started talking about how we wanted to cover the origin, and I was looking at our episode count and everything, part of why I wanted to split it into multiple episodes was the feeling of arriving at episode 50 with an episode about the Gundam The Origin manga I thought would feel special. Because I think, undeniably, the Yasuhiko manga of Gundam The Origin is one of the most special and singular things this franchise has ever produced. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, you know, I will say for my part, I'm kind of a weirdo in, I feel like, anime fandom in that I read manga before I watched anime. Um, I am someone who, when I was a kid, we were getting our first wave of official manga translations in the West, in, in America, through, well, maybe the second wave. The first wave was like early 90s stuff where like traditional comics publishers got it and did all the flipping and all the bad shit with that. Uh -huh, yeah. And that was bad. But like when um, Viz did their first Shonen Jump magazine and we were starting to get the, the, they were, the Tonkoban, but they would call them graphic novels out at like Barnes and Noble and stuff. And so like I read Dragon Ball stuff before I watched Dragon Ball stuff. Um, you know, I had seen like Yu-Gi-Oh on TV and then I got obsessed with the manga and really loved that. And I just, you know, One Piece early on, I really fell in love with manga and I've always had a real love for the art form. I've never read that many American comics, nothing against the medium, just to be clear. It's just, I haven't, it's just not something that's in my area of expertise that much, but I've always loved reading manga and I, I really have a soft spot for it. Um, as just a mode of expression. And I think Gundam The Origin is the best manga I've ever read. I think it is a real masterpiece of pretty much every aspect of the medium written by someone, you know, later in their life, later in their career, with a real mastery going back to work that was foundational to them as a creative person, right? Um, and treating it with sort of the weight of, of experience, but also a singular vision, because... We talk about Gundam in auteur terms quite a bit with like Tomino, but no anime is made by one person. It's a lot of people working together. A manga, sometimes there's assistance and stuff. I actually don't think Yasuhiko did that. I <laughs> think he did this all on his own is, is what I was reading about, other than like maybe some inking. Um, and so it's a very singular experience. And I just think, you know, there is something, you know, there are certain things I like that the anime does more. There's certain things where I think the manga does it better. But either way, there is something so special about seeing a version of Gundam this sort of unfiltered through a creative mind on the page like this. It's it's very, very special, and I'm really glad we're going to take at least, you know, this episode to, to talk about some of the finer points of it. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting because as you say, Jonathan, like, I, I do think, in my experience, it's pretty unusual in the Western fan base to start with manga where it's like in japan it's it's pretty ubiquitous um like like whether you start with whatever but like like manga is a ubiquitous part of the culture particularly for younger people um but yeah like for me in manga i grew up reading american comic books 
um, because that's the stuff that my dad read. So I grew up reading superhero comics um, and then getting into Dragon Ball and that stuff through anime. But I did read uh, some manga when I was a kid. Like I read the original, um, like the pre-Duel Monsters Yu-Gi-Oh stuff, which is always fucking wild. And, and if people have never experienced it, you gotta, you gotta read Murder Yu-Gi-Oh because it's fucking crazy you shit. The best thing I have ever done on Twitter, you can go back and find these, are my threads where I did, a, I, it's one giant mega thread where I did a, I read through Yu-Gi-Oh! and I did a kill count, remember that, Sean? Of every person yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh -huh. murders. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lot, there's a lot of murder in that series. There's a lot of murder. Yeah, way, like way more than you'd expect, because you'd expect zero, and, <laughs> but there's a lot more than one, you know? <laughs> um, it's, yeah. Yeah, so... So like so I did read some manga growing up, but I definitely was much more on the American comic book side. Um, but for the past like four or five years at this point, I started getting into reading manga in Japanese because if it's like it is, I think that and visual novels are the two easiest ways to practice reading Japanese or like putting on Japanese subtitles on a video where people are speaking Japanese like that obviously also helps. Um, but with manga, and I assume this would be the same thing. And I've heard from lots of people in like interviews of like creators who are who, for whom English is not their native language. There are lots of people um, who learned English primarily by reading American comic books because being able to give context to language through images um, makes it much much easier to read. Um, so for the past five or six years, like I've kind of like rediscovered manga or something um, as a as a kind of personal thing. And I haven't talked about it much on our podcast mostly because i read it at a relatively slow pace um and just like do a couple chapters at night kind of thing other than like kimetsu we talked about on the podcast and stuff but yeah so so that's something that's fun and and origin got to be that um thing for me uh several weeks ago or a month or two ago at this point um reading through the whole thing uh in japanese and yeah it is definitely it is amongst the best manga like it is it is that i've read it is a like masterpiece of the art form i think particularly in the particulars of like paneling page layout the way that like the art works and these kind of the core fundamentals of um like visual art whether you're talking about comic books or manga right it's the same like two different words referring to the same fundamental thing um but that like very particular art form um it's it is a, such a pleasure to read something like this that really understands the bare fundamentals of how to construct a narrative and pace a narrative and tell a story through the visuals as like the primary uh medium that is delivered and there is obviously dialogue there and the dialogue is good i mean the japanese dialogue i can tell you is if it's a scene that was in the anime it is the dialogue from the anime word for word like with very rare exceptions if it's adapting a scene from the anime it will never almost never change the dialogue um, but it is the story and the way it's told through the visuals and through the art and the way that the art is constructed, contrasted, and juxtaposed on between panels and pages, which is the core fundamental of what comic book storytelling is. And and this is like a masterpiece of that art form. Um, uh, like I do have quibbles and we'll have like discussions about some of the things it does as an adaptation. There's some things it does that I kind of disagree with. And I do think ultimately I wish that the manga went further afield from the anime because I think as it goes on, I think there's a there's a tension in the work between things that Yasuhiko wants to do that's different and then things that he's pulling in directly from the anime. And I think there's sometimes where I kind of wish you got more of him being able to go or like feel, feeling like more free to go further afield and just say, we don't have to adapt this like iconic scene from the anime 
just because it's an iconic scene from the anime like then doing something more different with it um but that's more like partially a fan gundam fan perspective coming from the show and and it's more of like the bigger picture i have some issues with some storytelling choices but the like core foundation of it is so sublime and so perfect um and how it uses its medium to tell its story um and that's the thing that like i think is basically impeccable about gun of the origin as a manga i mean you know if the the collected volumes that we have in the u.s are these it's the the perfect like versions that they got in japan so it's 12 volumes instead of the the 24 and they're on like art paper and they're big and really nice um but they also have all these extras and basically every single volume has one or more essays from a various like manga creator or anime figure or someone you know like makoto shinkai comes in and talks and you know um hideaki ano talks and then several like various like mangaka come in and talk and you can just tell that throughout its serialization this manga was just sort of greeted with awe by the industry of a lot of people who like know their stuff looking at it and going god damn it this thing is crazy you know kind of like mm -hmm. i feel like i don't know like if you follow any like filmmakers on twitter the way they talk about steven spielberg's west side story right now um yeah. you know something where it's like god damn it this guy is really good at what he does um but like really impressed um and there's just a lot of that throughout here but yeah it's I, I really love Yasuhiko's artwork. Obviously, we both do because we've said several times, you know, that's sort of our favorite character designs in Gundam is first mm -hmm. Gundam stuff. We really love the, the art style of F91, which he had a very big hand in, obviously. Um, and, you know, you get that in manga form where it's, you know, just there's no layer of someone else interpreting those drawings, right? It's all him. And I think his, I think that the, the, the two, like, number one things this, this manga and his talent has going for it is just the general sense of like paneling and how good that is that, that you talked about sean but also how much nuance and detail he puts into character expressions and mm -hmm. that you know the gundam character designs in facial features are fundamentally very simple but he is able to wring out just incredible emotion from them like this manga contains the best collection of char shit-eating grins you will ever see uh -huh. he is so good at drawing char you can just hear Shuichi Keda coming out of the page because he evokes that so perfectly um but also like with with Amuro and Amuro being very slightly redesigned I would say for for the manga version just a really powerful version of that character and all of them um Bright is very very funny in this manga I think he pulls on that Bright has always been kind of he's been many things but Bright is a little bit of a comic relief character in some ways in, mm -hmm. in classic Gundam because of how fucking beleaguered that guy is and they really play on that in the manga and it's very fun um, you know the way he does color pages is just completely unlike most manga you know most manga when they do their fun color spread maybe like the cover page color spread will be something the mangaka did the coloring on and it looks really beautiful but oftentimes if it's a color chapter it's you know just kind of fill in the color spaces right and it's not that interesting I don't think um, for Yasuhiko, the color pages are picked very intentionally. It doesn't feel like he was that limited in when he wanted to use them. Mm -hmm. And they're basically all done in watercolor. And they're very impressionistic. They are not, like, trying to be realistic color matches for what's going on. Or even to, like, match what was in the anime. Uh, and it's just constant, breathtaking images that belong in a fucking museum. If you followed me on Twitter while I was reading the manga, I just took 
hundreds of pictures out of the manga and I posted a lot of those on Twitter to share them and I thought I was being a little indulgent at first and it actually got a lot of reaction from people who were like had not read the manga or hadn't been able to afford all of these expensive books and were just very happy to see like this is the scene where Miharu dies oh my god this is drawn really stunningly you know yeah, and the version I read, so like, yeah, to also like reiterate, um, because you read the obviously the English versions that exist over here is what in Japan is called the Izoban, which is basically like the like I love it, it, it like it uses the character love for it, which I love about the, <laughs> that word in Japanese. It basically means like collector's edition, um, but it's like a fan's edition or something like that for people who love the thing, kind of edition. Uh, but unfortunately, those don't exist digitally in japanese um and and obviously like as as expensive as it would be as it is to buy all the english versions of, of the origin it would be substantially more expensive to buy all the japanese versions of the Isoban and then uh import them um so i i read digital versions of the tankobon um which are the the like 24 volume original japanese uh releases in like original in collected format um and those do have colored pages but not all the pages are colored um, so some of the colored pages are instead rendered in like kind of grayscale. And one of the things though I do love about the way the coloring works because of the water paints or like the watercolor stuff is they, with a couple of exceptions, generally speaking, even translated to color scale or to grayscale, the like the variety and like the richness and the depth of the tones used um, with the color pages, like render those images in black and white really gorgeously um and it, and, it, and it has a different feel to it um but even a lot of those color pages like converted to black and white have this like very moody atmosphere um that's like very rich and thick because of the nature of like the watercolor uh style that is used with the coloring um so it was never something where i felt like robbed or something that i was getting those pages in black and white because they have their it has its own like charm to it in a way that when i've read other manga that because that's a pretty typical thing if you're yes. getting a tanko bond they're not going to use like expensive paper uh, pay, paper stock and do all the different color pages but usually like i feel like when that stuff is rendered in grayscale it just looks awkward and bad in the origin i never really felt that way with the exception there were like one or two pages where it clearly like didn't quite work because of the exact colors that were used but in general like it still looked really like gorgeous and really rich visually in black and white also yeah the um the it doesn't make as much sense in in america where books are so expensive but you know if if you don't know tankoban in japan are very cheap they're like 350 yeah. to 400 yen so they're like four bucks you buy them at bookstores but sometimes you also pick them up at like you know the the convenience store and and stuff like that um and you know so like them being a little smaller and having the black and white pages it it's totally expected you know because yeah. you're paying so little for it um but yeah so the the perfect editions are expensive but you know they're still they're still in print in the u.s and they're very worthwhile i will say you know one of the nice things also about reading these in english is that this is a much better translation of gundam than you will generally get from subtitles because i feel like someone got to go through it with a fine comb and spend time mm -hmm. on it you know um and i generally think it's a very good translation so if you're reading in english they're they're good i literally put sean part of one of the stimulus checks we got here in the u.s uh most of those stimulus checks went into my savings and then went to to help pay for like actual things i need in life um but i did put aside about 200 dollars, and that's what bought me the manga and i do not regret it that was a good little gift for myself because these are treasured volumes i would say yeah i mean hey you, you art is one of the things you need to get through life also so i think yes. that is a fair <laughs> enough uh expenditure using using a stimulus package
um because i probably because i like you i put most of that money in my savings account i'm pretty sure i bought a couple of video games with it though it's like yeah no i got i got i I have fun too baby yeah exactly um (laughs) hey it was our patriotic duty sean they weren't they weren't called hoarding checks they were called stimulus checks if i want to spend two hundred dollars at rightstuff.com buying manga i can i'm supporting a small business sort of there you go yeah anyway but yeah it's you know, overall, if you are not going to stick around for the overall conversation and just kind of wanted to hear sort of our broad, spoiler-free thoughts, I cannot, if you have any affection for Gundam at all, you will love this manga. That is the easiest guarantee I think I could ever mm-hmm. make in the world. You know, I think everyone will have different points of comparison of like what they, which version they like best and all of this stuff. You know, I would say my two favorite Gundam things are Mobile Suit Gundam, the TV show from 1979 and Gundam the Origin of the Manga. And those are sort of the, the tippity-top of my pyramid. Um, and and I love a lot of other Gundam stuff, but those are sort of, like I said, the, the top of my personal pyramid. Yeah, and, and for me with this, like, I, like uh, honestly, for it's almost like the Gundam stuff is kind of like, almost like a side for it, uh, with it for me. Of like, it's, it is like more about just like the craftsmanship of the, Oh yeah, of the piece itself of of it being a manga because it really is like because because I almost feel sometimes the Gundam stuff and, and the way the TV show relates to the manga is like is mostly where I have like elements of contention with it. Where I almost feel if you didn't ever watch the TV show and you just read the manga, that I think there are things in there that are that bothered me that wouldn't bother you. Um, and the the nature of like the craftsmanship of it and that's i think kind of like what it, we mean when we say masterpiece is is it's about the fundamental craftsmanship of the art form that it's a part of um and it really is just like uh basically like a whole like university course or whatever just on paneling um or just on uh facial expressions or just on pages and pacing like it is like a master class on how to do visual like sequential visual storytelling in comic book or manga form um and that's the stuff to me that like is the biggest pleasure about gun of the origin is because i think it is a art form that is like oftentimes hard to see executed at this level because in the west it's very niche and in japan it's it's almost too popular for that because it ends <laughs> up being produced in this like factory like way where it's like you know most mangas like gets a new I- volume or issue like or chapter uh, every single week in published in weekly shonen jump or stuff like that and it's like it comes out too fast that it doesn't get the love and attention it like fully needs um and so i feel like this is an art form that oftentimes is hard to find stuff that is that like upper tier like this is just truly a masterpiece of the form um and origin is definitely in that sphere for me with stuff like watchmen or mouse or or in manga form the other manga i would point to that i've read would be akira by Katsuhiro Otomo, which is probably the most impressive, like, visual storytelling piece I've seen in a way that I don't understand how the dude fucking drew it. Um, but, like, it's it's that kind of stuff. This is in that category of, like, this is this is the top tier, like, real deal shit. Um, so if you're someone who has any interest in just, like, manga or comic books in general and likes the art form, like, this is something you would, like, really owe yourself to read. Yeah, and I think that's what's so special. It is, it's that, and it is the the collision with, because I do not think I, I have the problems that you're going to outline today, Sean, and that's fine. We can think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether you do or not, yeah, it is It is that collision of like, 
I, I think if you're a Gundam fan, I do think seeing some of, you know, seeing images of like the red Zaku done with this level of mastery is some of where the just humbling aspect of like, oh man, this is a, this is a fucking thing I'm looking at, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a super impressive thing. We've gushed about it for 20 minutes. Sean, you have read this much more recently than I have. I am very busy and I did not have time to go back and read this whole manga. Because one thing to say is, it's not that long a manga. It's long, 24 volumes. I've read much longer manga. I've read One Piece, <laughs> you know. We're at we're at over 100 now. Um, uh-huh. But this is, this is one quarter of One Piece. But I will say this takes me longer to read than any manga I've ever read because the art is so good and you just want to be in it. And it is very... Um, it's it's what was the term you used? There's like compressed, obviously, where you'd like yeah, put a lot of action. Decompressed. It's decompressed. It's very decompressed. Well, we can talk about that more later. So I did not have time to go back and like reread this whole manga because it would have taken me. It took me like a whole summer to read. It's it's a very mm. you know in depth endeavor. Um, so I will kind of let you guide the conversation. What uh, kinds of things do you want to break down as we talk about Gundam: The Origin? Well, I think actually let's let's start with some of like the compressed, decompressed, and like kind of the stylistic stuff about it that I think is really remarkable. Um, yeah. Because so obviously, like a big part about the origin that's fascinating is that it is in it, a comicalization. I have recently learned that there is a word in Japanese called comicalize, um, which is re- used to refer to something that has been turned into a manga. Um, which is like hilarious because it's it's such a good English word that doesn't exist in English. Um, but someone someone came up with a fake English word in Japanese, and it's like, why don't we have that word? It's I mean, it's because comic books aren't as popular. Um, but it's but a it's a thing word. they need in Japan because yes. if you don't know, like most of these never get translated or released officially. But like every if an anime wasn't based on a manga it's probably getting a manga adaptation. And frankly, even if it was based on a manga, it might still be getting a manga adaptation. Like, they're just yeah. very, very... Like, Dragon Ball has, like, Dragon Ball SD that's just retelling Dragon Ball with, like, the super-deformed chibi characters. No one needs that, but it's out there. You know, it's... The, the comicalization is is everywhere in Japan. <laughs> yeah, it is... It's a... Because manga is such a kind of a ubiquitous entertainment form that, yes, like, any... Uh, like any anime any video game any light novel anything like that that's in that kind of sphere of popular culture um if it doesn't already have a manga it will get a manga and as you said even if it does already have a manga it will somehow get another one um uh so you know it's a pretty common thing i mean for most gundam series most gundam series have mangas i mean the, the original mobile suit gundam didn't for a long time mostly because it was be from an era before that was a common thing because that mostly started happening in the 90s um, although now you can go back and there's like a Zeta uh, Gundam manga and stuff like that. I think there's actually multiple at this point. Um, but most other Gundam series do have manga adaptations. Uh, but this is like a pretty unique project, though, in that regard, because it is going back to a classic series that was an original anime project. It was never based on a manga. Um, and then having someone use Kazuyasuhiko, who was a character designer and animation director on the original show, like reapproaching it. Um, and so, like, as an adaptation, I think it's really fascinating. And and obviously, I have some conflicting thoughts on, on it as an adaptation, because there are some things I don't love it, about it as an adaptation um, that I kind of wish it went further afield. But there's other stuff about it as an adaptation that I think is absolutely incredible. Because uh, there's sort of the two parts of the manga, right? There is the, we are recreating sequences from the anime um, in manga form. And then there's the, we're either changing something enough that it's effectively a different scene 
or we're adding in a whole new scene and with like the most notable section of that being the giant middle check like section of the manga that is all the flashback material that is covered in the OVAs and so obviously we're not going to go into like the plot and discuss all that with that because we already talked about that in the OVA episodes um but that's kind of the two different things that the manga is constructed out of and one of the interesting things about talking about the style of it and like formally how it's constructed I think is in how it adapts so directly sequences from the anime into manga that I have never seen something so perfect in that regard of taking something that exists in one medium translating it to another medium and like exactly replicating the qualities of it in that other medium and that comes down to stylistically what Yasiko does which is he goes for a heavily decompressed style of storytelling and I talked about this briefly in one of the episodes of the origin of the OVAs but to go over it again briefly the the concept is you either have compressed or decompressed storytelling in a comic book format compressed storytelling which is what a lot of older comic books in manga more go for is when you have like lots of action and lots of time represented by a fewer number of images right so you might have like you know one image that is like you know three big panels on a page and each panel represents like if it was super heavily compressed like three different times in the day like the top panel on the page is the morning the middle panel is the afternoon and the bottom panel is the night and that would be like a heavily super compressed version of comic book storytelling where there's massive amounts of time and things happening in between the different panels most uh comic book storytelling has moved towards more and more decompressed formats as time has gone on uh but origin is extreme even in that regard so decompressed is having more panels describing smaller moments of action um so in the origin manga what that is used for is often to replicate the kind of pacing that you accomplish using editing in the anime version but recreating that pacing using paneling and decompressed um comic book art in the, the manga and so you will have scenes that are just like i mean image by image almost exactly the same shots that the anime uses um but it's not just you can't just sort of use the same shots and have a storyboard it's like how do you use the size of the panels and where the panels are on the page to lead the eye in such a way to create a sense of pacing of different moments that readers land on and spend time on those moments that create the same kind of pacing that the editing in the anime does um and that's the thing that like i've never seen something else do that um partially because it's like this is like a really unique project but also because it just requires such talent to get all that little like nuance that exists in the animation with like the characters movements and the expressions on their face and then like the juxtaposition of different shots if they're having like you know a conversation between Amuro and Bright and you're getting different close-ups on both of those characters um dedicating multiple panels for like the faces for Amuro in like this conversation with Bright let's say and then you're getting multiple panels for the faces of, for Bright's face in response to Amuro and it's not just here's an Amuro panel and we have all, all of Amuro's dialogue here is a bright panel and we have all of Bright's dialogue here's an Amuro panel and we have all the response instead you're tracking through individual panels all the nuance and the emotion that Amuro is feeling and expressing artistically and the size of those panels shifts appropriately based on how significant that like emotional state Amuro is having is and that mastery of the pacing 
and being able to take a sequence that exists in the anime and being able to read it in manga form and effectively in my brain feel like I just watched that sequence be animated, I've never seen something be able to like accomplish an effect like that. It's really fascinating. You know, if, yeah. if anime fans who listen to this podcast want a good counterexample of like what's a very compressed manga, the best example of that is One Piece. One Piece, Oda's style is the most heavily compressed thing you'll ever see. He is someone who doesn't really draw fight sequences so much as he draws fight moments. And that like one panel will suggest a whole series of choreographies. Um, it's part of why the... The One Piece anime moves too slowly by any standards. They have to do one of those every single week. You know, yeah. there's only so much they can do. They should do half as many episodes as they do. It would be a better anime. But it is not as egregious as you would think, knowing One Piece basically does one chapter an episode. That sounds unbearable. Sometimes it is. Most of the time, though, it's not as bad as it would sound because those chapters are, like, Oda's action is so compressed that there are often scenes I read in the manga and I go, oh, this panel is going to be five minutes of the anime, justifiably so, because of what he's drawing here, you know, um, because he's compressing that action so much. And what I and so, like, it's some compressed in the manga, so the anime kind of has to uncompress it to make it work in yeah. film language, right? Gundam is the opposite because Tomino's style as a director in Gundam shows is very compressed for film language, right? Yes. We've mm -hmm. talked about this a lot. That and, and Tomino evolves this over time very radically until you get to G-Reco, right? Which is just, you know, shaved down to the edge of a knife in terms of its pacing, right? Yeah, it's um, like so compressed by the time you get to G-Reco that it alienates most viewers that haven't yes. learned the language to be able to understand how much information is packed into every single moment in G-Reco. Exactly. Um, it's it's almost its own version of film language at a certain point. But if you go back to OG Gundam, we've talked about this many times, the miracle of the first two episodes of OG mm -hmm. Gundam. A lot of other Gundam shows do a similar plot to episodes one and two of Gundam, but they take five episodes, you know, yeah. because of how much is packed in there. I mean, even some other Tomino shows, he has trouble getting like through that much plot that fast. And it doesn't necessarily feel unnatural, but it does feel different from other anime of that or any other time period. So, and I think Yasuhiko is very smart. And it probably just comes from, like, fucking, you know, this being there at the storyboarding level of that original show, yeah. right? And knowing all of it, that he has the right instinct of the way to recreate Tomino's pace on the page is not to try to do a fast-paced manga. You actually kind of have to do the opposite. So mm -hmm. the first two episodes of Gundam become over 200 pages of manga. It's a huge stretch. It's way more than like the raw storyboards would have been or something, right? It's it's a yeah, very and different thing. It, critically, that's one of the sections that has some of the fewest alterations in the entire manga. Like there's a yes. little bit of extra stuff at the beginning and they like add there's like a more Gundams or like, I mean, those Gundams always existed in the anime. You just never saw them because there was more than one and they get destroyed. So it's like you get a little bit of that. But the vast majority of the, what constitutes the first two episodes of the anime adapted into the manga is some of the most faithful stuff like page to page that you get in the entire manga and it's still as you're saying it's like this is 200 fucking pages like this is it is a massive amount of manga time dedicated to um that time in the anime whereas like normally that would be like in in, in another manga adapting to an anime that amount of manga would be like an entire core of an anime. that'd be like a fucking season basically you know yeah it could be totally um you know 200 pages there's you know, probably the Demon Slayer movie is maybe 300 pages of manga, yeah. less than that, and that's a two-hour movie. You know, it's um, 
and and Gotoge is sort of more in in the middle in his approach. It's yeah. not sort of extreme on either end. Um, but yeah, it's like my favorite example in the Gundam: The Origin manga, Sean, isn't the beginning. It's actually the Miharu plot in Dublin and all of that, which is maybe the closest thing in the entire manga to the anime. Uh-huh. It makes no changes because yeah. how could you? The one thing it cuts is the one thing it shouldn't cut, which is Amuro giving him the toolbox. And yep. just nobody gets that. That that's the best moment. The movies don't do it. This doesn't do it. The toolbox needs to be there. But that's a, another discussion. And that's like well over 200 pages. That's like 250 pages. It's a big stretch of the manga to do what's a pretty little section of the story. But it does it just so beautifully. You just feel all of it. And I think that's exactly, you know, Sean, when you're talking about trans, it's translating the language of, of film, of anime, and specifically Tomino anime, which is its own kind of film linguistic construct to the language of manga with the goal of making it as effective in a manga as it is as an anime and the way to do that is through this decompression and it is very virtuosic yeah and it's something that i think like it's it's very easy to almost like miss how impressive it is because it's it's that kind of thing where like it comes across completely effortlessly yes so i think it's like it's very easy to almost like dismiss it because it's like oh well all he's doing is taking this scene in the anime and putting it into manga. It's like, if you've never read another thing that is like both a manga and an anime, and you've like, can compare and contrast whichever direction it's come in. Like you never get that. Like that's phenomenally difficult to do, or it's like not like nearly impossible. Cause again, I've never seen it done um, like this. And it's something that's like, it's easy to dismiss, but in practice it's, it is, it's, it's virtuosic. It's masterful. Like it's an incredible mastery of the craft of um manga and paneling and page pacing like i think one but probably my favorite example i know this is one that you also tweeted about is um the coming home section which is yes. my, our favorite episode basically of of uh the original mobile suit gun and this is the episode where he goes and meets his mom and then at the end of that um the white base leaves and the mom's on the beach um and all that kind of stuff and it's it's very exactly that sequence as it was done in the anime um, but using the panels and the size of panels and like the like creasing size of panels as the sequence goes on, that creates the exact same feeling of pacing, even though it's like it's the same shots. It's again, identical dialogue. This is part of like the almost surreal quality of reading it in Japanese is because it is word for word the exact dialogue. You feel like you're just somehow watching the anime just like perfectly replicated in these still images. Um, and and that's the kind of stuff that looking at it, I, I've, I'm just like always in awe of of it because it, it it replicates the feeling I have watching that scene in the anime, just giving it to me in manga form um, with some of the benefits that the manga format has, which is, I think so that you described, Jonathan, is really kind of like luxuriating in the art. Like you're you're spending so much time on it, um, even when it's a lot like sequences like that one where there's very little dialogue, you're still spending so much time um like because I, I think this is how I read comics. I imagine this is how most people do. In a moment like that, you almost like kind of go back and reread it multiple times, or go through the panels multiple times in sequence, because it's very easy to do that in reading a book or reading a manga. And the, the art feels like it's kind of asking you to do that. It's not just about sitting there and staring at one panel forever. It's about enjoying the movement between the panels and the way that that's constructed. Um, and it's so rich and there's so much going on there with the mood and the tone and the style that just going through that sequence multiple times and going back two pages and then going through it again and just appreciating the images and enjoying 
that sort of the juxtaposition and all of that um is is like one of like the i think like the distinctest pleasures and my favorite part of reading the origin is is that level of like mastery of construction and how good the art is on that level is just perfect oh totally it's this is part of what took me so long to read the damn manga is i would go through a scene at a normal pace and then i would go back and look at images and juxtapositions and i would take photos with my phone um just to save that picture or i would tweet it out or something just to like show show the world like i need to share this image with you because it's so beautiful um you know really really which i don't usually do while reading manga i should say like with sometimes when i'm reading manga digitally i will do that because it's very easy to take a screenshot and i will like save i have a bunch of kimetsu images for that reason but you know when i'm reading a physical book you have to pull out your phone and like your camera and do that and it's kind of a lot um but i was moved to do it with this because it is so beautiful and it is and it's not just that individual images are beautiful but it's the interplay between them obviously so yeah um that coming home one is a good one because it's like it's like at least like eight pages for the not the scene but like the moment when amuro is walking away with bright and his mother you know kneels in the sand and goes amuro you know like that thing um that's incredible. Yeah, and it's it's where it's like you can just if you've seen the TV show, you can basically hear the track that plays in that scene in the anime. Like you could you can feel everything that like the anime uses. It's all of its tools that it has that manga doesn't have to accentuate that sequence. And then Yasiko uses like equivalent tools to like suggest and invoke the same emotional state and the same meaning of like this very tragic but necessary departure. Um, it's I- it's like. It is in the manga is like stock full of that. Like that's I think for me the easiest example to go to just because it's like one of my favorite moments in the anime. And and it's true of like many of these kinds of things in the manga where you get the sad Gundam episode ending replicated in manga form. And it's like those are some of the most distinct and kind of like profound or powerful moments from the original show. And then seeing them replicated in manga form is like incredible. Yeah, they're all over the place. You know, the the, the moment where Amuro and Lala meet. And the swan, mm-hmm. you know, that is if you, there's just at a certain point in the manga, certainly in the back half after the flashback, once I really was uh, tuned to his style, I would just start getting very excited for certain scenes. Mm-hmm. And then you would see them and it's like, oh, yep, he did that justice. Oh my God. And he does all of them justice. There's no scene he does wrong. Um, it's it's really incredible. Um, did you ever, because I did this all the time. Did you ever just turn on Gundam music while reading? Not while reading, but I would, like, what I would frequently do is, like, go and watch, like, clips of the anime or, like, it got me in the mood of where, like, on, like, my walks or something, I would start listening to Gundam music. Yeah. Um, but I, I the, the thought didn't even occur to me. I don't think I've ever listened to music while reading a comic book before. Um, I started doing it when I would read Gundam Thunderbolt, the manga, because the music, because all of the stuff that Thunderbolt, the anime, does with music is is pulled from things the manga suggests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would listen to like some of the jazz they invented while reading Thunderbolt, and it was very fun. And at a certain point, I had that feeling so strongly, Sean, of like I could hear the music in my head that I just went, "Well, it's all instrumental. This is fine." And I would just turn on various pieces of Gundam music while reading it. It was a very nice way to do it, um, not necessary or anything, but it's just how my brain was working. That's that's very good. If I ever reread the origin manga, I'll I'll keep that at the back of my head. Yeah. Wait until there's a very good Shar moment, and then put on the Sha uh, song <laughs> and just play that on loop. Sha Sha Sha. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it's very good. 
anyway. Because, yeah, the my favorite thing about the manga probably is how he draws Char. I mean, he just, like, mm-hmm. there is there is no panel where he skimps on the amount of regalia that guy has on or, like, the amount of detail in his face. It's just, there's so many, when you talk about the decompression, there's so many just, like, pictures when I go through, like, my gallery of photos I took from Gundam the Origin where he will just do a series of panels, like, depicting a Char grin and just going into Char being evil for a moment. It's It's very delicious. Yeah, there are lots of, like, really good, subtle, low-angle shots of Char as he smirks, like, uh, yes. with a very <laughs> ominous background. Like, it is, yeah, one of those things. And and you get a lot of that in the OVA, right? Because the OVA replicates a lot of those shots in the anime. Um, and you just... But, but it is something where I think the OVAs, while they're very good, they never quite capture, I think, like, all the subtleties of, like... It's, of course, they couldn't. Like, it's, it's animation, so it's, like, it's just a different thing. But the subtleties of the facial expressions... Um, on the characters, um, particularly for Char, who's like a character who has subtle facial expressions. Obviously, characters like Bright and Amuro and Fraubo are much more expressive because they're like, you know, incredibly stressed in super high stress, very emotional scenarios. So when those moments where it's very appropriate is because Yasiko does go for a much more explosive art style that's very expressionistic and, and where characters are distorted physically to sort of get their emotion across. But Char is never drawn that way because that's not the guy he is. He's always super cool, super constrained, super confined until we'll talk about like the ending where um, he plays with that a little bit more um, and kind of distorts Char some in the, the last sequence of the, the manga. Um, but in general, Char is this kind of contrast to all the white-based characters where he's so confined to who he is and just is like, that's where you get all the subtleties of Yoshikazuyasu goes to art because all he has to really play with is the fucking chin and the camera angle and the body posture. Um, but everything about Char's characterization, as you say, all the stuff that like Shuchi Keita imbues the character with with his voice just comes across through the physicality of the character um, in wonderfully subtle ways. Uh, that is also one of the more impressive parts of the manga to me is how restrictive it feels like that character design should be to the manga format because of how covered up he is. But it like never, not only does it never negatively inf- pack the way the character is like visually read on the page and like getting access to some of like what's going on with that character it enhances it because it's so a part of who he is they he also makes it super queer when garma's around i just have to yes. say that the i'm looking through these photos and i do have uh, the sequence where you have uh char in the shower while garma is in his room and if you thought that scene thought uh, felt a little queer in the tv show um it's a lot of juxtapositions of like char's naked ass and abs and garma kind of looking at him you know aside and you know it's 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 the good stuff yeah if you want char butt um yeah. this is this is char butt from the guy who designed char so he knows <laughs> every inch of that butt better than anybody oh my god yes but it's very good anyway um absolutely it's uh it's good stuff yeah, so that's that's like I feel like the that side of the manga, right, where it is adapting the anime and like reproducing these elements in moments from the series. Exactly. Um, there is there is one line I wanted to pull up just because I I think it's funny in, in Japanese. Like I said, um, in general, if it's a scene from the anime, it is just going to be word for word the exact dialogue that that scene has in the anime. There is early on one exception that made me smirk because it's. Uh, just like a weird thing that happened because of the way the continuity has been slightly shifted is there's a very, very famous off-quoted Char line from, um, I think it's episode two in the original show, which is him saying, Mise te morao ka, 
この連邦軍のモブルスーツの性能とやろう、which is basically is like, let's see the performance of this so-called Federation mobile suit.、Um, but, but Yasuka has to make the slightest adjustment to that line because in this universe, the Federation already has mobile suits. It's just all their mobile suits are shitty. So he has to call it mobile suits no shin no mobile suits no se no te yaro. So it's like, it's the new Federation mobile suits so-called performance.、Um, <laughs> And it was like, it, it only jumped out at me when I was reading because it's like, I was so accustomed to word for word, like this very iconic, extremely memorable dialogue in Mobile Suit Gundam. Mobile Suit Gundam in Japanese has like the most fucking quotable dialogue.、Um, and then you just have to like, it, it felt like, I wonder if like if the editor just said, I mean, you got it technically. It, this line doesn't actually make any sense in a universe where they already have fucking like gun tanks and gun cannons and stuff. So he just. I know it kind of hurts the pacing of the line, but you just gotta put the character Sheen for new in there because it just doesn't make any sense. And I, I feel like in my, in my internal narrative, how that moment happened is just Yasiko just very, very reluctantly going, fine, okay, Sheen, <laughs> mobile suits, fucking whatever. Um, it, you know, Sheen is a good word. I like the word Sheen.、Yes. It's got a cool kanji, makes sense. Yes. Um, But yes, so、uh, that's that stuff in the manga. But let's talk about some of、uh, the other side of the manga where it makes, like, in some places, very significant alterations、um, throughout. And then, then the deeper it goes in, the more substantial, like, not just alterations, but like big additions and things that, like, were in the、uh, anime version are added in.、Um, obviously, the flashback stuff is the biggest part of that, but that then affects a lot of things that happen afterwards.、Um, So, what are some of the things that they changed, Jonathan, that you want to talk about? Well, I think broadly there's actually two halves of this we can talk about. There is、um, the first stretch of the manga up to them basically getting to Jaburo,、uh, mm-hmm. and then there is the flashback, and then there's everything after that.、Um, and when I say up to Jaburo, you might think that's later in the series than I mean if you've only seen the anime, because this is the. In the early going, structurally, this is the biggest change he makes. And I actually think this is a good change. I, I think, like. The movies would have been better if they were able to do this in movie two.、Um, he moves Jaburo up before Odessa Day. Part of this is because the geography of Earth makes that make more sense with where Jaburo is. Odessa, wherever that is in the show, is sort of nondescript, but he makes it literally Odessa in like, the, the Soviet Union area,、mm-hmm. um, where like, the, like, the Odessa steps from like, Battleship Potemkin, there's a, they're like, the Gyan is on the Odessa steps. That you would have seen in the movie Battleship Potemkin, which is one of the most famous movie scenes of all time. Anyway,、um, so like it would make less sense in his like very geographically descript version of this to have them go over to Russia, then back to Jaburo. So instead, he keeps the first, like, you know, it's four volumes in, the, in this version, I guess eight in the Tonkoban, is them heading basically down the west coast of the United States into. Like through Mexico and then into South America down to Jaburo, and that is the first stage of the mission. Then there's the flashback, then it's them going over the sea. We get Dublin over to Odessa, and then Odessa Day becomes. They rearrange some things so that Odessa Day isn't just a big campaign, it's the campaign to get、yeah. the Zeons off of Earth. There's a lot of like little, like kind of finicky military strategy changes like that that just sort of like smooth out some of the storytelling that is kind of fun to see if you care about the strategy and like, you know, geography side of things. And so after Odessa Day, then they go back into space. And in terms of large structure, there's fewer changes in the space section, but there are additions and things to talk about.、Um, but that is one of the, the big interesting things. There's also stuff like. 
coming home is again in a different place than it is in the show. It's it's yeah. moved a little earlier in the movies. It's moved even earlier here. I still prefer where it is in the show. Um, yeah, it, but there's I, all that kind of stuff. I don't really understand the coming home movement because it comes before um, them defeating Garma um, yeah. in the manga version, which just like it just doesn't make sense to me because it feels like Amuro's entire character point there is that at this point he has become ingrained enough in like the military structure of the white base that he can't escape it, um, even if he wanted to. And, and I'm, it's kind of unclear whether or not he wants to say that he's conflicted on that point. But it feels weird for that to happen before they have their first major victory, where it always yes. kind of felt like the point of that sequence in the show partially was that after accomplishing this like big thing, Amuro is now like stuck. He's been in it for too long and he's done this like, you know he doesn't realize that basically Shar has orchestrated the whole thing but from their perspective they fucking defeated one of the fucking zombies like that's a huge feather in their like military cap and Amuro is now stuck where he is and I, I I never really understood the choice to move that piece earlier no like in the movie I don't think it matters as much because the movie just moves it before like the big funeral and their first fight mm -hmm. with Ramba um, but it's still after killing Garma and so broadly it still works um, like the story still works. It's like it's a very well done version of coming home. I like that. There's another change he makes in the coming home section is instead in the show he comes out in the Gundam. In the movie it's all in the core fighter, and in this it's done as sort of a, a big car chase sequence, which is a kind of fun way to do some variety mm -hmm. in there. Um, and it involves Sela and some other stuff. But yeah, um, I think that is that's one of the only. Th there's that. There's also he does like a. There's something later in the manga with sort of decoupling the two cosmic glows that I don't like that are some movements that happen. Um, but yeah, that's one movement. But broadly, I do this sort of the way he's restructured some of the plot from OG Gundam in this like sort of more geographically oriented version of the story, which matters to me not just on a pedantic like where are they in the world thing. That's not what I care about. It's more that I like that in the way that like reading Lord of the Rings, if you know like the geography of Middle Earth, it's cool to see how they're moving across it. I like that there's a very clear logic to everywhere they go and it feels like there's a lot of forward momentum in the journey because of that. And Yasuhiko just has a fucking field day with various like you know, real world markers like in the entire Garma section happens in Hollywood, like literal yeah. Hollywood Hills. Like Garma has set up in like a Beverly Hills mansion and it is very funny and it is very interesting and I think works for that story very well. There's like a little change like um, the Eskenbach family, family is basically like local gangsters in this version almost. Uh -huh. um, and I think that stuff is cool. So there's a lot of little tweaks like that. And then broadly, I do think the change to do Jaburo and then move on to Odessa Day as the end of the Earth section works very well for me. And definitely, I, I love what he does with Odessa Day in general. And I think there's a... I could see in my head a version where they were able to reanimate more of Movie 2 and Movie 2 climaxed this way. That is a better version of Movie 2 that wouldn't have that weird split in Movie 2 where it kind of feels like two movies. And it doesn't yeah. do the Odessa stuff at all. Yeah, because I think like it's a smart adaptational choice because it's not something where necessarily I think it's superior to what the TV show does, but it's something that's like, it's one of the things that the manga, while it, it can replicate like individual scenes and sequences perfectly faithfully, and it's like utterly uncanny, the the manga isn't an episodic TV show, right? So no. it's like it can't it can't do some of that stuff. And I do think there's stuff that the manga struggles with in places with characterization because it's not an episodic TV show and it doesn't like replace 
the kinds of like normal episodic interactions that Amuro has with the other members of the crew. So I do feel like I wish that there was something in the manga that replaced like, you know, every single episode Amuro would have a conversation with Sela and every single episode he'd have a conversation with Ryu because it's like, it's an episodic TV show. Every episode he gets in the gun and he has a fight and there's like a procedure there. And the original TV show uses that to create natural kind of like colleague type relationships between Amuro and the rest of the crew. That then is one of the core dynamics that things like Ryu's death operates off of. And those things are broadly missing in the manga, which I, is one of the places where I wish the manga like, created more sequences or went a little bit further afield to kind of find other ways to fill some of the character gaps that exist. Because I feel like the relationships between the crew members sometimes feel a lot thinner in the manga. This is um, the ultimate what, advantage yeah. the TV show has always had, uh-huh. is in that, and then I think in the general sense of, like, Amuro's power growing, has always felt the most natural to me in the TV show because of the episodic structure. I think a lot of people go back and view them as limitations, like, ah, oh, he has to go out in the Gundam every time. And I'm like, well, it's a TV show, and it was conceived as a TV show, and yeah. it was made as a TV show, and it used the format incredibly effectively, and the manga uses its format incredibly effectively. So for what's lost, I think other things are gained. But it is one area where that is something I would agree with you that the anime just just has a leg up that the manga could replace some of that stuff. But it's also just some of it is just TV versus comic, you know. Yeah, because one of the things that the manga does is by reordering that structure, it is able to create a like overall narrative like sense of itself that makes way more sense for this more kind of seamless story that's told in manga versus like the more choppy nature of episodic tv show where it's like you know for mobile suit gun in the anime like it frankly doesn't matter whether or not it makes perfect geographic sense where they are and and the tv show doesn't it doesn't take place literally exactly in our geographic world it is a sort of like this isn't america it's america you know it's that kind of thing so it's like it's a slightly different um design in that sense but for the more seamless nature of the manga i think it was very important to sort of take that stuff into account and the other thing that i think that it does is it creates like two clear phases of the story that um fit much nicer that then have the flashback in the middle that breaks it up which is there's like the federation on the defensive the flashback the federation on the offensive and it's, it's like, such it's a, a cool move yeah yeah it's a very clear structure that the tv show doesn't need um because it's again it's episodic so it's like it has all these breaks anyway so it doesn't need those like movements to fit that kind of military pattern but for the manga and it being more seamless i do think it, it was like important to consider that um and to to make those shifts and in general like i think that those choices and where those like bigger ideas get moved around like that is a very smart adaptational choice that works the medium that it's being moved to. Yeah. Like I can imagine a movie trilogy. Some people ask us sometimes, and we should actually fully address this question on this episode, Sean, because we get asked it enough. Do we want Sunrise to do some version of a remake of original Gundam? We can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. If they were ever to do like the adaptation of the origin, I actually think the best way to do it would be a new movie trilogy where you could make a really good movie too, where the midpoint action sequence is the Jaburo attack, because that's how phase one of the manga ends is with the big attack on Jaburo. That is again, a little more fully fleshed out. Like Shara has a bigger role in that. And there's this, you know, doofus Admiral who kind of fucks it all up on the Xeon side. And it's where you sort of see all of the Xeon's weaknesses And it is the final time the Federation is fully on the defensive. And then there is the flashback. And then it is 
we're going to turn the tables, and they start turning the tables first with Odessa Day, then with Solomon, then with Abawaku, all of that stuff. And I could see a really good movie too, where your sort of midpoint is the 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 Jaburo stuff, and then your big you know second and third act would be moving over to uh, um, Odessa and having a big like war scene in Odessa Day, which is very epic and finishes the Earth section. Yeah, I, I agree with you that, like, were you to do this, that, yeah, it makes the most sense as a movie thing. Because as you say, like, I absolutely think that if movie two could have done this, obviously it was restricted by the nature of it being largely using re- pre-existing footage from the show. But that flipping, uh, like, makes the movement in a, like, seamless narrative sense much more effective. Whereas in, like, a TV sense, that doesn't matter as much. Um, because there, there is like one thing that that like this doesn't matter, but it's, I just I guess it's just like a thing to point out because the it because of the movement and the shift, like the entire reason why they go to Jaburo in the first place in the anime is because that's like the only place they can go to get into space, right? Like it's, it's why Jaburo is at the equator line is because that is like physically the easiest way to get into space, and that's so that's why that's where all the space elevators and like launch pads are. Um, and so for a TV show that that was like a good enough like momentum and a good enough reason to get there and do all that stuff whereas like if it was a manga I think if that was like their only reason to get there it would have been profoundly tedious because it like the manga relies much more on the top level plot line to drive drive things rather than the like individual plots of individual episodes and that's like kind of specifically what I mean by like for the TV show it doesn't particularly matter for the manga. It's like that stuff is really important. And so those adaptational choices were really significant and, yeah. and, and smartly made. Yeah. The engine of the TV show is what happens within the episode, yes. which builds in a serialized sense. But Tomino has always been an anime creator. And there's anime creators who are the opposite of this, who I think is more focused on the episode. Um, mm-hmm. And that's all the way through G-Reco. All of his shows have big serialized plots, but like the engine of every episode is the episode um and uh you know even in something as complicated as zeta i think that is generally still the case um and so for a manga you can kind of do that on a chapter level but it's a harder thing to to do and that's not really what you're looking for so it is that top level thing and so you know the logic in gundam the origin is you know white base is on side seven it's got all these rookies on it we go down to earth the first thing we want to make a beeline for is the big base where all the military is, right? Yes. And so that makes sense. And it's through getting to Jaburo that they prove themselves, which is why Jaburo then sends them out to the front lines of Odessa. And again, if you're doing a story that is more focused on that top-level storytelling rather than the individual engines of individual episodes, um, this is an improvement on that level. I agree with you, Sean. I don't have necessarily a clear preference for one or the other because I think they work for their medium very well, each of them. Yeah, and it does give an opportunity for the manga to add in some really fun stuff where there there is more detail and more insight into a lot of, like, the behind-closed-doors politics of the world that all, like, checks very clearly with, I think, the sense of the world in the original TV show. It's just you never really saw it because the TV show is so focused on the white-based perspective with occasional asides to mostly Char and then sometimes, like, Makabe or whoever, like, the villain is, like, Romparal for that section. Um, whereas in this whole stuff, particularly with Jaburo, you get way more info about like the politics of like the Federation and hiding in Jaburo and like the whole point of the base of it being hidden and the Xeon's multiple attempts to try to figure out where the base is. Um, and then that leads to the whole section of Char 
um, like befriending this group of natives that live in the Amazon forest where Jabiro is and using that info to find where it is. And then that also ties into um, the stuff that we talked about in the OVA episode where in the past it shows that he worked on that construction site to build Jabiro base so that he generally has a sense of where it is. Um, and, and all of that like behind the scenes little like fiddly bits that's some of the stuff that was like very fun as a Gundam fan specifically getting to see that because it matches so closely with I think like what you kind of would expect from watching the TV show um, that like the TV the nature of the episodic elements of the TV show would make those asides like bloat those episodes and slow the pacing down whereas for the manga there's like a very nice space for that more like kind of fully fleshed out very lived in um, sense of the world that you are getting access to through the narrative lens of the manga. Yes. Um, I also think some of the stuff they're able to do with setting is very fun. We talked about mm -hmm. Hollywood for Garma. Yeah. There's a there's a, a whole series of things they move to sort of this area of Mexico that I think is very cool. You know, Yasuhiko just has a very clear love for like the world and world locations mm -hmm. and stuff like that that he kind of wants to see and show off. Um, you know, you get some good stuff with the characters. Hayato gets to do some judo on a group of fed soldiers in this Mexican town. That's a good chapter. <laughs> um, yeah. There's various little things like that. Yeah. And again, I think, and, and Jabro has always been roughly placed in South America, but I think it being a little more just clearly tangibly like this spot on the equator and then thinking about stuff like there would be a native population there and mm -hmm. all of this stuff, right? Um, is very interesting. I think one thing to talk about is that and this is this is just going to be a very big topic. Shar and Sela are generally more prominent characters in the manga than they are in the anime. Um, I don't know if Sela. I don't know if I would say more prominent. She is differently prominent. Um, yeah, Sela yeah. is she is used in a different way in the manga overall than she is in the anime. Yeah, she's a very prominent character in the anime. Obviously, she's in every episode. She's more prominent in the anime than she is in the movies because the movies cut out the like G parts that she she pilots mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, so yeah, Sela is a little different, but then Shar. The manga does basically does not do the thing where Shar leaves for large periods of time. He is somewhere doing something. He's less prominent in places, but he is still, I would say, roughly raised to the level of the deuteragonist of the piece. Like, mm -hmm. he and Amuro are sort of like... It is a protagonist-antagonist structure, and very sharply. Because I might argue Yasuhiko has a darker vision of Shar than Tomino does in some ways. Yeah, I, um, I, I think he definitely does. Yeah. So that's something to talk about. But he is if he's an antagonist, he's an antagonist who is also main character number two on the call sheet, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so there's stuff like he is there at the Battle of Solomon in an interesting way. It's actually one of my favorite little things the manga does is... Uh, it's my favorite cover on any of the books is volume eight of the, the perfect editions I have is this illustration, the red uh, Zaku at Gibraltar, which is on their way right, to yes. Odessa. There's this whole added plot beat that feels like it could have been an episode of the original show where a bunch of fed soldiers are getting slaughtered and it's a mystery and Amuro goes out and what has happened is Shar is so obsessed with Amuro because one of the other things the manga does is it generally makes the rivalry a little sharper and more to the surface and he is so obsessed with Amuro and he wants to fight him so Shar has just like set up at Gibraltar and is just slaughtering just large numbers of mobile suits and it's this, the illustration in particular I love is him with the heat axe up just, and there's all these like mobile suits, like with their hands extended, like, please no. Um, it looks like, you know, an ancient drawing on a, on a fucking, you know, museum or something. It's great. 
And so Amura winds up coming out and fighting him, and this becomes the big like final fight for the Red Zaku, which does not really get a send-off in the original show. So here it gets a send-off where Amuro destroys the thing, and it redoubles Char's commitment to like try to be better, um, which they pay off in the duel in Texas. He actually does pretty clearly beat Amuro, and there's kind of a more of a push and pull in some of what they do here. Um, but that's an episode I actually think is a, is a cool addition. So that's some of the stuff they do to add with Char. Yeah, because it's it's also one of I think the reasons why Yasiko breaks up that structure is because it keeps Char more central for longer. Um, because yeah. even because while all the Rumble Brown stuff is happening, you've got Char's like you get there's a size to Char's doing his politicking to get himself back into the good graces of um, the military, and you have some new scenes around that stuff. Um, that's good, and then obviously he's very central as he was in the show on the attack on Jabiro. Um, and then, as you say, he's got um, this whole, like, sort of additional section here um, that, yeah, I also enjoy that bit. And I think it's like uh, it fits the structure of the manga. And as you say, it creates a more clear, specific line between Amuro and Char that continues throughout the whole story rather than having the sort of, like, break in the middle with the TV show. Which for the TV show, this is another thing where it's like, as an adaptational choice, it works, but it's not necessarily something that I wish the TV show had done because I think it's important for the TV show to have a rotating cast of villains. Um, Whereas for the manga, it's so much more focused on that, like, big picture story that keeping, as you say, the kind of protagonist and then antagonist slash deuteragonist stuff in the forefront is super important especially when you're then going to spend like a quarter of your manga on a flashback focused on that character. Oh, exactly. Like I would not change this about the original series, but the original series, it's a more one-sided rivalry. Char thinks about Amuro way more than Amuro thinks about Char in the original series because Mm -hmm. Amuro has a lot of other shit to deal with. And like Char is a front of mind concern when he's there, but you do not get the sense generally that Amro is like up at night worrying about Char other than maybe those first couple episodes, right? Yeah. In the, in the manga, because Char is front of mind, Yasuhiko also does alterations to Amro where Amro is thinking about Char more. And particularly after the duel at Texas where Char kicks his ass, Amro becomes kind of obsessed with him too. And so it draws this sharper rivalry between them. Again, that is not something I think the original show should have done. I think the original show did it the right way, and it's a version of Amuro I, I like. But I think for the manga, it would be it would feel too disconnected if you had a big, massive flashback about Char, and then the main character of the main series wasn't thinking about Char that uh-huh. much, right? Yeah. So that's one of those things that Yasuhiko is just... I think he's good at tracing the kind of lines of fallout of the changes he makes, and that's one of those that, that I think is done very well. Yeah, another kind of because is involved in all of this stuff, um, and I think it's like an interesting change that there's stuff about it I like and there's stuff about it I don't like. Um, but this does also mean that Slugger Law becomes a much more like central is maybe an exaggeration, but he becomes a present character for a much bigger stretch of the story. Yeah, because he's introduced in the same place he's introduced in the anime, and this is he's introduced at Jabra. It's just Jabra has moved much earlier. So Slugger Law is there as like, and, and it's him and a couple of other pilots that are part of his like crew that are minor characters um, that are there for um, all of the stuff in Jabro. They're there for, obviously they're, they're technically part of the crew during like the flashbacks. So they're like in the back of your head while you're reading all the flashback stuff. Like once you get back to the present day, like Slugger Law and all those characters are, are there. Um, and then they're there and all the additional stuff they've added, like 
there's another fight with the Black Tristars. There's the Battle of Gibraltar here with um, Char. Um, then the Battle of Odessa, Slager Law is there. Um, and so he's there for that whole section rather than in the anime. Slager Law is introduced and killed, I think, three episodes after he's put into the show. It's like three or four. Um, he's a very minor part of the show in the overall scheme of things. Whereas, like, he's a pretty... It, just in terms of, like, amount of time he is a part of the crew and is there... He's a much more significant character in the manga overall. Well, what I would say is he's a main part of the crew. So in mm -hmm. the original show, he's more of a guest star for a couple of episodes. But the, one of the other changes they make is Texas happens before uh, Solomon right. in, in yeah. this. So because of that, he is also at Texas. So Slegger yeah. is there for all of the episodes between um, Gibraltar, uh, Odessa, getting into space, the side six stuff. Texas and then he he dies where he dies in the original version which is Solomon and all of that is there I generally really liked the extra stuff with Slugger I think fleshing him out as a character and having him around more which mixes up some of the group dynamics of white base and I think f makes the crew feel a little more alive and reactive um, and changes up some of the dynamics that we would have had there in the show I like all of that I think it's fun I think he's got an interesting role to play at Texas as one of the characters who's sort of out on recon but he's ground level he's not in a mobile suit fighting some of that is interesting um and it it makes some of the stuff with him and mirai and some of that feel less whiplashy i think um see this is actually my problem i think it it i don't i don't understand why the mirai stuff happens in this version of the story like it it kind of feels like it's a misread of the dynamics that are at play in the tv show version where i think it's like really important that Mirai basically doesn't know anything about this dude. Like, the whole point yeah. of it is that he is this, like, meathead soldier that's been thrown into the crew. He's only been there for a fucking week or something. Mirai's barely interacted with him, and she sees him as this, like... he. She just sees him as a meathead soldier, and that's all he is, and he's this, like, sort of generic masculine man, and she can just use that as a way to sort of, like, deal with the kind of emotional stuff she's got going on where... She had her whole, like, kind of idea of a life with Cameron Bloom. That was this, like, thing in the back of her head that was always there. That when she confronts it, is gone. But she can't be with Bright because of the dynamic of Bright being the captain. So she kind of uses Slugger Law as an outlet for that stuff in a way that's not entirely fair to him. And he identifies and, and like, that's where that conversation is, like, being like, you don't want to do this. Like, this isn't a thing. Like, like, I'm not the person you think I am. You're not the person you think you are. And, and they like shared the little kiss or whatever I think like that whole dynamic and the way that um, that story plays out using Tomino's like um, very compressed juxtaposition focused storytelling where a lot of that dynamic is like not really told to you but you have to tease it out based on the compressed version of the story that's given to you that to me just doesn't really I don't. I don't understand why Mirai and Slugger and Slugger have a relationship in this version because all of that stuff is spaced out so much more. I think. I think that's convincing. I think you're right about that. Yeah. I think I didn't have that same visceral problem with it, um, but I, I see where you're coming from on that. I think one thing it did for me. I so the scene where the series of events you just outlined is done in the manga where Mirai goes down to him in the Battle of Solomon and they have that he's eaten the burger and all of that stuff. It's recreated pretty faithfully, as a lot of yeah. these scenes are. I did get just a very different read on it that felt much more sort of sorrowful and like Slegger was more of a character in that moment and some of that stuff that, that kind of worked for me. 
But I, I can buy your, your argument here, and I think there is probably an argument to be made that if Slegger is changed as much as he is, he deserves a different ending. Yeah. It's sort of the, it's the sense of like, there is no denying. Slegger is a very whiplashy character when he comes uh-huh. in in Gundam the anime. He kind of throws people for a loop. But I think that's pretty clearly Tomino's intention. So if you want to make a version of the character who's less whiplashy, you can do that. But you probably can't do the same things with him is, is probably a fair way of saying it. Yeah, like that's that's like a very good example of the kind of thing I said, like kind of near the top of the discussion of that. There are there's stuff um, in the manga that to me is just like, I don't understand why you're doing the story anymore because you've changed enough of the context around it, both by having Slugger Law be a character for much longer. So like the like if if you're going to build up like a romantic dynamic between him and Mirai, you need to start playing that off earlier or it like it's whiplashy in a different way because it's like it's whiplashy in the anime because this character's come out of nowhere um and then he dies and in the anime it's also important to note that's not a thing that happens so quickly because the show got cut short that was the original plan well the show got cut short after that point um so it's like the character's designed to be this whiplashy thing whereas like if you're going to build that up you should be doing it the way that like the Fraubo Hayato stuff is done um, in both the anime and the manga, where there are like little moments and little scenes that you probably will miss if you don't know that there's going to be a dynamic between those characters. But if you do know, it is suddenly built up in the background, and that's not really done between Mirai and Slegger in the manga. I um, mean, it feels weird that you would replicate those sequences so faithfully, but change the context around which they happen. I think most importantly, the biggest change is putting the duel in Texas in the middle there. So you don't have the immediate contrast of Mirai loses her relationship with Cameron and then she immediately goes to Slugger Law. And like that, I mean, that's like happens between two episodes uh, in the anime. Whereas there's like this whole other big narrative that occurs um, in the manga version that like sort of dilutes the nature of like kind of the character drama and psychology that's going on there um, that I just feel like while those Slugger Law scenes are super iconic in the anime, and so I get, like, the instinct for wanting to replicate them, like, that's the kind of stuff that I wish Yushikazu Gasika went further afield and just kind of totally changed how that happened. Um, and, like, whatever happens to Slugger Law, or if there's a Mirai relationship, or if there isn't, that, like, those scenes would be totally different. That's totally fair. Uh, I do just want to highlight the scene where uh, Slugger eats his hamburger right before he dies, which is one of our favorite scenes because he's just uh-huh. an American guy, so he eats hamburgers, yep. right? Uh, Yasuhiko, just he goes to town on that hamburger. It is a very yep. good series of drawings. Also, that scene in the mess, like the mess hall area, there's a bunch of graffiti all over the place, and a lot of it is very funny. The chair Slugger is sitting on just says, lick my ass, Amaro, on it. <laughs> right. And then there's a yeah. pillar that just says, bright is gay, exclamation point. Um, which is a very funny approximation of, I guess, uh, an English way of making fun of someone. It's very weird. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I think that's, you see the bright is gay graffiti a couple of times and it's, it's very funny. Yes. It's, it's, it's very like there was someone who like spent like a summer in America or something. <laughs> yes. Just because yes, he could talk to and, and like advise that because yes, it's like, it's like, well, you're not like super far away from getting your kind of rude graffiti, but it's just off enough that it's very weird, but very charming. 
Yeah, it's very like mid two thousand. Like it's yeah, someone who spent a summer in America is like they just throw around the word gay as an epithet in a in a weird like childish way. I guess we'll do that for our military ship, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, all right. What else to talk about here? Um, let's see. So there's Slager Law. Like, what are some of the other like major changes that are made, um, or like additions to the to the story? You know, there's a lot of just like whittling down and kind of focusing and stuff like that. I think with like the zombies and things like that. Um, you know, I think Dozel. There's there's some stuff that I think is an extension out of things in the flashback stretch that comes back to play in the second half of the series. Like I made a note here that Dozel has an argument that that you know when he is at Solomon being abandoned, basically that oh, yeah. you know he basically talks about how you know we could actually probably win this war if they supported me. And he's probably right. And like Yasuhiko very clearly draws a, a line around Solomon that like it's more decisive than people think because Kaecilia and Girin are focused on sniping at each other, not at actually winning the war, which would require defending Solomon. And so Solomon is this interesting moment where the white base encounters less resistance than it thought it would get because Kaecilia and Girin are just fucking up left and right at this point. There's a lot of stuff that they're like is I think very seated in the flashback and is there yes. in the original anime that is drawn out more. Yeah, that's that is some of my favorite stuff in the last sort of third of the stories. Yeah, you come out of the flashback knowing a lot more about the zombies in their sort of inner politics and the dynamics between the characters. Um, and yeah, you get a lot of little bits like that throughout the whole section um, with Solomon and then also Abaku, um and then in Texas and all of the stuff in space. You're given these little moments and beats with the different Zabi characters yeah. seeing how like the dysfunctional nature of their um, relationships in the way that like, you know, for instance, this is where Kaecilia very clearly is more manipulative and even more backstabby than she is in the anime this is where like you get a lot of little moments where it becomes clear that she when uh degwin is killed that she's using that more as a political thing rather than as a legit like she really loves her father and it feels more it's a political sort of like wedge to use to justify her execution of urine like lots of little moments like that um where if you like some of the kind of fiddly inner politics of you know like historical dramas or like you know game of thrones i think is like talked up a bit too much in that regard but game of thrones does have elements like that that are quite good in in like seasons like two and season four um and like that kind of stuff is very juicy and it's very satisfying to watch this whole you know hornet's nest stab each other to death and then dozel yes. standing there being like god damn it <laughs> Like, what the fuck? Those is the one guy who understands, like, military strategy that actually cares about the lives of the soldiers under his command. Um, but at this point, he's, you know, realizes that basically it's a lost cause. And it's interesting getting that, like, additional level of insight into the character that reads to me very much like it is the same take on the character of Dozozabi you get in the anime. But by seeing where he came from in his much more kind of naive past in that flashback, it heightens the kind of like um, weary nature of Dozel in, in the present day at the end of the military campaign, realizing almost certainly he's going to die trying to defend Solomon. Yeah. Um, here's a little change that we talked a little bit about talking about the OVAs, but I think it's worth fully explicating here, which is Makuve. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Makuve is much more focused in the manga in his role as, like, the guy on Earth, the head of the Earth Invasion Forces. 
And he, basically the way Yasuhiko writes him out of the series is to have him kind of go down with the ship on Earth. And mm -hmm. so he gets out in his Gyan at Odessa and basically self-destructs and sets off this sort of like final nuke. And he has this whole speech about, you know, let them, when the name Makuve is recorded in history, let the Gyan be recorded beside it is basically one of his final lines. And then, of course, he does get the line about the vase as well. Um, but it's basically, they, and some of this comes out of what, uh, well, what we got in the flashback with him, that like, he is an Earthophile. He loves being on Earth. He thinks Earth is cool. And he ultimately decides he does not want to go back into space and keep fighting this shit. He is happy to just die on Earth. The result of that is that he does not appear at Texas and the Gyan does not duel the Gundam, but the Gyan does still get an appearance. Yeah, the, like it is, it's that thing of where the Gyan just... And it makes sense both here and the movie. Like I, they're, they're It's a choice I agree with intellectually, but in my heart of hearts, it hurts so much to not have the Gion fight the Gundam. And it's like, I get it. Yes. It's like, when you're not doing the episodic TV show thing, I think it is very hard to think of how do you get that to happen. But at the same time, it's like, the entire point of the Gion's design is that it is a dualist Gundam. Like, it's the whole thing with it. It's like, a, or the, not a dualist Gundam, but a dualist mobile suit. Um, it, 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 it hurts not to, not to get yes. that. Even though I understand it, I understand it, and it's it is the right choice. It's just it it sucks because I want to see the Gundam and the Gun fight. I think the argument you could make is that he somehow should have fought the Gun at Odessa. Like the mm -hmm. Gun should have come out in a different format, so that like there could have been a big battle there between the Gundam and the Gun as kind of one of the climax points of the Odessa operation. I think that's where you would have to do it because I do think. If you take Makave as a character seriously, the logic that he would just die on Earth rather than go back into space and then do random stuff for Char does make sense to me. Like, I do think yeah. it is a change for the manga that makes more sense, especially if you've done the flashback at this point, which they have, and explicated a little more of his character psychology. I think all of those are the right calls for this version of the story, but I too want the Gyan to go into battle because it is the glorious duelist mobile suit. Yeah, it is like, and the only problem with having Makave fight at the Battle of Odessa, because it, cause it is like, it's the only place you could have it happen, but I think it it's the right choice not to do it because it would just take too much focus away from the nukes, which is the whole point of Odessa, yes. right? Like symbolically having the nuclear weapons there and Amr disarming them, like is a really important part of that story. Um, and, and it would feel like it would end up making the duel with the Gyan feel anticlimactic or it would be too climactic and take away from the climax of the nuclear weapons and the threat of the nuclear weapons. Um, so it's it's just like, I feel like as an adaptation, it, you're just sort of backed into a corner, whether you're the movie or you're the manga um, and just not being able to do the true duel in Texas that we all want um, and having the Gundam and the Gyan sword fight with cows running around at their feet and stuff like that. Um, it's just, it's a moment that's too good to exist in anything other than the original TV show. I think I agree. Um, Lala, all of the events with Lala happen in the manga. Yeah. And they happen in roughly the same order. Some things are moved around a little bit. Um, certainly also regarding like the Texas stuff and whatnot, obviously. Um, and then in the end, the the cos the two the, the way I've been saying this is the two cosmic glows are uncoupled. So in the episode, a cosmic glow in the TV show, it is two cosmic glows that are referred to yeah. by that title. It is the Lala dying, and then the big new type flash that she and Amro have together as she as she dies, and then it is also the solar laser um, being fired and uh, by 
by Girin, which kills Degwin and uh, General Revel and, and half of the Federation fleet, right? And that is when Amuro runs in and says, it's the light of hatred, we can't let it win. Um, in this version, I I forget what order they do it in, but they definitely decouple them. They do not happen yes. juxtaposed. And in fact, the final confrontation with Lala is moved to not a sort of random confrontation between Solomon and Abaku, but at the start of the Battle of Abaku yes. is where Lala's death happens. I like all of it, and I think it's done incredibly virtuosically in its drawing and everything. Like, every moment is done as well as you could imagine in manga form. Uh, I do think, like, in general, like, the reason those two events work as hard as they do is because of how they work together. So I don't love the decoupling of it. That is a change I probably would not make if I were doing this. Um, it's still very tour de force in how it's depicted, I think. Yeah, because I'm, I'm with you. This is another change I don't love. Although I think I, I do kind of see why it happens. I think it mostly happens because the the focus of the manga, particularly at this point, is so much bigger Right, it's made. Sela is a like more sort of center of focus character by this point because of the flashback. Yes. Shar is obviously a, a character that you're spending even more time with his perspective. You've got Amuro, obviously, um, but then you also have all the politics. You've got Rebel. You've got the Zabis. You've got a lot more plates are being spun very actively by the manga because of the much wider ranging story it's told, and that means that I do think that like this is maybe even like a bigger topic of conversation than just this sequence but like i do think amro's character gets a little bit lost in some of that stuff and he is decoupled or like removed from the center of attention um even though he's still clearly the protagonist he is the main character of the story um he is not the like main character of an episodic tv show around which basically every episode must revolve in some way because that's the structure of if you're going to tell a different story for 22 minutes every single week like you have to have a very hard focus on a core strong clear protagonist character around which to build those stories um and so i think a consequence of that is that some of these kinds of moments um i think it's also very true of Yu's death um in that sequence where it's just like it doesn't hit nearly as hard because you're not given such a like grounded humanistic perspective through the the sort of vessel of your protagonist's character that you're processing all of those feelings and all of those emotions and the cosmic glow is like the most distinct version of that right it's like the the highest point of emotion and drama within the original show um it's it's like you know i mean that specific sequence is probably the most remarkable sequence in the original tv show and it's something that i think it's like it's probably too much for the manga to be able to actually be able to replicate what a lot of that stuff does and also try to maintain all the other stuff that the manga is doing that the TV show doesn't have to worry about. Well, this is where just trade-offs are inevitable, right? Yeah. So I agree that Amuro is de-emphasized a little bit. It's not even that like Amuro has fewer scenes or something. It's just that there's more around him, which is what you yeah. were saying there, right? And so Amuro's role is diluted a little bit. I 100% think the stronger version of Amuro's character arc is in the TV show for a couple of reasons. Part of it just being that Amuro is our POV in the TV show and he is less our POV in the manga because Yasuhiko is less interested in telling the grounded from, you know, inside Amuro's head version of this story, which to be fair was already told. So yeah. you might as well change it. 
than something that is a little more in Yasuhiko's modern wheelhouse, which is sort of Gundam as a history almost. You know, this is a big story of the entire world, and we see so much of it, especially because of that flashback. We understand such a big, you know, slice of this world, and everything is contextualized so clearly. Amuro's role in that world is small in some ways, right? Um, you know, he is, he does not have the 360 degree vision that we have, or characters like Char kind of have. Um, and so he does get de-emphasized a little bit. The upside of that though, is that a lot of this stuff of like seeing the world in, in all of that and some of the extra stuff they do with Char and Sela, I really like in the manga and I really like it as an alternate version. And I really like seeing some of the lore fleshed out upon and it creates opportunities for really cool scenes. Um, you know, I think Char comes to a point as a character in a really, really interesting way in the manga for me. Um, but yeah, it's it's trade-offs. It's, this is an area where I think the manga sacrifices some things I love from the show to do some things that the show couldn't do. And that's kind of inevitable in this kind of adaptation. Um, and it's I think the question is, did Yasuhiko make the kinds of trade-offs that result in an interesting manga? And I think the answer is yes, consistently. Yeah, but like the, the one thing that I do think probably should have been done though is that that once you start having that happening it is where i feel like it doesn't necessarily make sense to do the like shot for shot word for word recreations of scenes from sure the anime, yeah right because that's like that's very much like reuse death is probably even like a more specific version of that for me than the cosmic glow stuff because because at that point there isn't that much more stuff going on um but like because you don't have the like clear episodic focus of spending time with these characters and everything like Amuro only has one or two conversations with Ryu before his death like with the main one being the one he has in the anime when they're when he's in his jail cell and Ryu comes to talk to him right um but other than that Amuro and Ryu very rarely interact um and kind of the whole narrative point of Ryu's death of him sort of sacrificing himself and that sacrifice being the glue that brings the rest of the white base crew together doesn't really exist in the way that the sequence happens in the um manga partially because his relationships with other characters in the show are it's less his relationship with Amuro and his relationship with Bright and it's way more his relationship with Kai and Hayato which that gets emphasized way more because that's the sphere of the sh the crew that he interacts with in the manga and he doesn't really go m far afield from that um and so the whole point of that sequence in the anime is that he is the go-between between Amuro and Bright, and he sees both of their perspectives, desperately tries to get them to reconcile their differences, um, can't do it through words, but through his sacrifice shows them the path forward. And like that dynamic doesn't really exist in the way it happens in the manga because of other changes made, but the scene is still done identically. And so it's like when the context around the scene has been changed substantially enough the identical execution of that like translation that we've talked about that is very masterful a lot of the impact of that i think like is lessened because the moment isn't a moment that exists on its own it is built through the context of everything around it and so it, it feels like i wish that yusuke yasuhiko adjusted those moments more to fit the new context that they had been given i think that's fair i think the ryu one i definitely agree with that I will say, I'm looking through the Lala panels right now. I do think the way they do Lala's death in the manga is fucking virtuosic and amazing. Oh, yeah, like no. it's, like, it's the, fucking like incredible. the individual execution of the scenes is always very impressive. Yeah. It's like it's like 
it's the balancing act that's being made as an adaptation that like in a larger picture it like creates gaps i think experientially yeah. for the reader of the of the material let's talk about char uh, yeah. A character we have not ever talked enough about. You know, I feel like just we always give him the short shrift. No, um, there is a lot to talk about with Char. I want to start on the the comment I made earlier, though, Sean, that I think Yasuhiko's vision of Char is much darker. I think he, mm-hmm. um, you know, because Tomino obviously wrote Char for this and for Zeta and for, you know, Char's counterattack and stuff. And I think generally we would probably agree that I think Tomino has this kind of like vision of Char as kind of a noble failed hero in some ways i think is one way to say it like yeah, it always is... feels like Shar could be a really good person right yes. like and he's always like one step away from that and it's the thing that like you're always kind of really rooting for Shar in a way um and in the mobile suit gundam like i mean he's the one who ends that fucking war you know like and, yes. and he still does that in the manga but the, this is where like a lot of the context changes um um, and then in Zeta Gundam, he's, you know, he's a good guy. He's on your team. He makes the speech at the car, yeah. all that stuff. Um, and then yeah, that leads into Char's counterattack, where I think the audience is meant to be very conflicted on whose side are you taking here? Because both sides, Char's perspective and Amra's perspective, both have like positive elements and negative elements. Um, and, and you're kind of like torn between who these two characters do you really want to side with? Um, and that that is very much, I think, Tomino's vision for the characters is is very flawed man who is always on the edge between being a monster and being a hero. I think that's absolutely the way to say it. And he, you know, I, I and I think he also is very invested in the idea that Shar is someone with a certain amount of damage that holds him back from actually ever fully yes. embracing that, right? Uh-huh. And I think that, and I again, I don't think Yasuhiko's conception is like counter to that, but I think Yasuhiko is more interested as you inevitably are if you've done a story with a six-volume flashback in the damage part of it, right? Like, I think Yasuhiko has a very clear investment in the idea that Char is someone who builds a lot of ephemera and nobility and regalia and an entire persona and an entire way of speaking around the fact that he is fundamentally a small, scared child who is scared of ever being scared again. Right, like mm-hmm. we talked about this in the OVA, that the primal moment of Shar being attacked by the dude, the knight in the big suit of armor, who almost kills him and Sela, and against whom he is virtually powerless, and that combined with what happened to his mother, with the powerlessness of watching the Zabis take over his father's empire, all of this stuff, that is what leads Shar to build a fucking you know iron suit around his heart and his body, right? And that is what creates Shara's novel and leads to, you know, him challenging God, right? And I think that is, and this is where I feel like if you've only seen the OVA, it's really cool to see the whole manga, to see how Yasuhiko takes those interpretations from the flashback through to the end of original Gundam. Because I do think it informs a lot of what happens with Shar down the home stretch, which is that Yasuhiko pretty consistently emphasizes the darker parts of Shar's personality that hold him back from being anything more than kind of just a fucking murderer, um, which is what he is in original Gundam. Like, I don't think Yasuhiko is like wrong or morally off about like what Shar. Like, if yeah. anything, there's a clear-eyedness to like Shar's a fucking killer and like not much better than that in this story. Um, and so, I also think he picks up on something that has always been part of my interpretation of Shar, which is that Shar is not a new type. He might have some some abilities in that direction, but he is too closed off 
and he is too on his own to ever embrace that. And crucially, he is insecure about it. That is something they really bring to the fore in the manga. There's an entire scene that is... It's kind of there in the anime, but it's very fleshed out, where Char, uh, Char and Lala get Amuro off on his own before the Battle of... Um, I think it's after or before the Battle of Solomon. It's somewhere in there. And he's like... It's like the Darth Vader, like, come to me, joy in my side, yeah. Amuro, right? And Amuro rejects him, and Amuro calls him out basically on manipulating Lala... And also calls him out on not being a new type. And it leads to one of my favorite panels in the entire fucking manga of Char just with like his shit eating grin broken on his face where he's like stunned that someone has called him out like this. And he starts going on this whole speech about like what a noble person he is that Amuro is nothing. You know, he's as, uh, you know, Char is like the king of Zeon and all this stuff. And so Char has just a lot more fragile ego there. And of course, this all leads into how um, Yasuhiko imagines their final confrontation, which fills all of the same basic like plot, like checks all the same boxes, but develops in a very different way that puts Char in a much more fundamentally dark light. Yeah, I mean, he Char is like rendered monstrous at in the climax, right? I mean, it, it is a thing where that sequence is redone as basically like a horror sequence uh, where yes. where Amuro is hiding from Char um, in this like medieval armory. Um, it's actually like, a really you know, cool detail I like that they add because they're in an armory in the anime, but we don't know how they got there or what it is. Yeah. In this, it's Girin's chambers on Abawaku are a big armory and we see it several times because Char even has a conversation with Girin that's really cool. Yeah. And then it's Char leads him into that ar armory and that's where the climax happens. Yeah, and so Amuro is basically like totally powerless against Char. Um, and it, like, it, it, which is the thing that, like, there is this dynamic in the anime of that, you know, Char is more physically capable. He's older. He's trained as a soldier. Amaru is, like, a nerdy boy who spent most of his life in his underwear, in his room, like, <laughs> hacking shit on a computer and eating chocolate bars and, like, you know, fucking instant ramen and shit like that. So it's, like, obviously, in a physical sense, Char is much more capable. Amaru's, like... Um, the the amazing things about Amro are mostly in his head, um, and not things that he can enact on the world with a physical body. He needs the tool of the Gundam to help him do it, um, and so that is like really heightened in the how it's rendered in the manga. And then this is also where like the art becomes very like distorted. Um, and this is where you know Char becomes monstrous. He like his proportions are shifted. He is like there's a great panel that's like basically a full page page spread of him like kind of stomping through and shouting. Um and, and the way he is drawn is he's like like the, he's larger than he could possibly be even given like accounting for perspective. Like he is kind of swallowing everything in the room. It gets very like surreal because there's like a dream like element to it because he has the flashback to the are like the armored knight who attacked him um as a child when Amuro pushes over a suit of armor so all of those elements to say like it drives it into a much darker place where Char is rendered more explicitly as a full-on villainous monster um and less of the sort of like um you know troubled character who has been driven to this point through like his specific animosity and rivalry with Amuro and his lost sight of the larger objective like, some of that stuff of the larger objective still happens. He still shoots Kaecilia in the head. But the context of it feels very different because of the tone of these scenes. Yeah, and I mean, one of the biggest changes we haven't mentioned is he brings up the line from Char's counterattack. Yes. He has Char yell the line about, Lala was to be a mother to me. Um, something to that effect. 
Um, I imagine it's is it just the line for, in Japanese from Shar's counterattack? I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know he just is. But it's it's different because he is like screaming this at him, like you took her from me. This is what I had. This is what I wanted. And 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 Yasuhiko directly draws the connection to his mom, and he says, "My mother, Astrea Tordaikun, was murdered by the Zabi. She was shut away in an old tower, all alone, left to suffer in her sickness. I swore to avenge her. Not a single day has passed, even during this war, that I have not thought of my mother and her lonely death. And yet you ever stood in my way." And so Amuro becomes this like figure of projection on whom Shar places all this hatred on basically his own failings and inadequacies, frankly, right? Like that is sort of the strategy that is that is done here. And then the kicker to this is you do have their final like sword thrust and you have Sela come in. And when Sela comes in and, and sort of gets in the way, this is where you have direct parallels drawn between the scene with the knight from the flashback and the OVA. Um, and Shar sees Sela in the position he was in against Amuro. And Shar has this moment of seeing that he is inflicting the horror on these people, including his sister, that was inflicted on him. This, this primal moment all comes together. And then you get the final sequence between Shar and Sela here, which is just much sadder than I think it is in the show. Because it is this fundamental, he has completely denigrated himself before Sela's eyes. He sees hatred in her that he did not want to be there. Um, he takes off the mask. Shar literally says, if not for this helmet, I'd be dead. He acknowledges that Amuro beat him, basically. And then kind of mournfully almost like says, like, like basically like get out of here alive. I feel like there's kind of an implication that Shard dies in this version, you could argue. Mm -hmm. um, but he says like, I have to go do this one last thing. He says, Artesia, I've lived for this long for one reason and one reason only. If I abandon that, then all that I've done will have been done in vain. So be kind and nurse him and go on to be a woman to die for. And that is how he leaves. And then it's the same. He, he blows up Kaecilia. Um, although the series of explosions that happen out, out of that is like fucking 10 pages of manga yes. uh -huh. and it's very epic. It kind of feels like when the fucking ring is destroyed in Lord of the Rings, it's like the entire empire comes crashing down and there is a sort of mournful quality that it feels like Shar has gone off to die. So broadly, that is the series of events and I think it creates a a darker version of the character whose redemption in this moment is a little less of a redemption than a sort of reawakening of a humanity that has been dormant and realizing how far gone he is and that there's no coming back for him. Yeah. There's there's a lot of this that I, I really love. I particularly have, like all the art around this whole sequence is incredible. I yeah. do I do think that there is too much Char dialogue in the last like third or so of the manga. I feel like there, and I get like the reasoning of having of, that Char becomes much more vocal because this kind of facade starts breaking down. But I do think it, it became a bit much to me when he's just like literally connecting like all of the direct dots for the audience by saying it's like, it was my mother and my mother was killed by the zombies and this, yeah. that, and the other thing. And like all the kind of stuff that I think is very apparent. If you just read the manga, like, like, obviously, you know, we've already, we've been thinking about this character a lot in other stuff. And this is, well, there's a nuanced differences to the interpretation of the character here. It's like broadly the same or very similar. Um, but even without that familiarity, I think basically all that information has been communicated very clearly through like the plot and the character's actions and yes. things like that. He doesn't need I, to say it. 
Yeah, and there's there's too much of this, and there's a very similar scene that again, like the art and a lot of the elements of the scene, I love. But there's the scene from what is basically a really expanded version of um, the encounter that Shar and Sela have in the episode Shar and Sela from the TV show, um, where they encounter each other on Texas. Um, and here, that sequence is them on their old farm from, like, if you've seen the OVAs, it's that same place. Um, Kai, they're at the grave where yes, everyone... Yeah, they're at the grave at the farm with the farm in the background. There's, like, a big kind of, like, willow tree or whatever in the foreground. I love that Kai uh, overhears their conversation. He's, like, sneaking around. Um, and it's... It, there's a lot of stuff in that conversation I love. And it's, like, Sayla starts calling Shar out on his bullshit. But then it, like goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and starts becoming so much about Char just sort of expositing his character motivations and he gets very explicit about his like thinkings around new types and all that kind of stuff and I think like I I wish that that stuff was dialed back because it's like very excessive and I think it would it, it's so much more effective to just let all the art and like the plotting speak for all that stuff because it becomes a little almost hammy to me when the character is expositing that stuff so directly because it doesn't read to me as like the character would be saying all of this they'd be saying some of this um but it becomes more of just almost like an internal narration at some point in the way that it's written but it's being like vocalized directly by char to other characters it's like he does that in that scene he does that a lot in the scene, the kind of Darth Vader scene you pointed out with him and Amuro, and then he does that a lot in the last conversation um, that he has with Amuro during their fight. And it's like, if that could have been cut down by like, honestly, like 70%, I mean, it's so much. I think those sequences would be way more effective. And 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 the if you narrowed down the things that he's saying to the handful of like really important statements um that like you can kind of pin what's meaningful about what he's saying um and like cut it down to that stuff and have the action speak for the rest of it i think it would be a much better those would be better scenes overall because so much about it is so good but it, i found it very distracting because of how much dialogue and that might be accentuated somewhat by it's like it's harder for me to read the dialogue because i was reading it in japanese so it's like i i end up having to focus on it more but it's something that felt so unnecessary to me. And I really wish that those sequences were more underwritten than they are. I totally see what you mean. It did not bother me to the degree it bothered you. Um, but I think you're, I think in general, you're right. I will say the, the way they've redone the final sequence in the sword fight and all that, I found to be a real tour de force. I think it's very mm -hmm. powerful. I think the Char just fucking losing it at this point and becoming, and the monster comes out. And I think yeah. like, and again, this is not exactly the interpretation we've gotten in other mediums, but I think it's very consistent with it. And I think it is good for Gundam to have a version that is a little more upfront with what a fucking monster Char is, you know? Like, this is kind of where Yasuhiko gets to have a lot of fun with Char being evil in the flashback. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about it in the OVAs, right? But I think the flip side is I think Yasuhiko knows that if you're going to have that much dessert, you need your vegetables too. And your vegetables are Char kind of like being called on the monstrousness, you know? Yeah. And so I think it is powerful. I think the moment where, because this is, and I think this is key, the closest thing he has to an actual new type flash in the manga is the moment when he sees Amuro and Sela in the position he and Sela were in as kids, but he is the knight now. Yeah. And I think that's a really... And I think it's important that that knight never had a face. We never knew who was in there. And Char has become that faceless knight. 
And he realizes that he still stabs at Amuro. He stabs, and and Amuro's wound is more violent in this version. It's like really in there. Um, but the same thing happens where Amuro did get the better of him. And this is one moment where I do think, and I think if Shar was less overwritten overall, it would stand out even more. But I think Shar just literally saying, "If not for this helmet, I'd be dead," and then tossing the helmet to Sela. I think him acknowledging that is powerful in that moment because that's how you know he's come down a little bit. Is yeah. for the first time he's able to acknowledge Amuro's superiority in this way, and then I think there is this just, and I think it's important because this version of the story has his entire backstory, right? That you feel the weight of the sadness of what this person has become, and this entire journey was for what? It was for murder. It was for fun. It was for vengeance. But what did it end up in? is him stomping through a room trying to kill a kid, you know? And that's kind of what it is. And I think that beat is delivered very powerfully. You know, Char's last line in the manga is done with this, a full-page panel of him looking at Sela saying, everything I did, if, if I don't finish this, it will have been done in vain. He's looking down at her. He's got this kind of, like, sorrowful expression. The blood is racing down from that scar on at the point of his third eye. Um... And I just think it works really, really well for me. I think it's a very powerful version of the ending that I think in a version of the story where Char is elevated much more, it's a very powerful payoff to all the stuff that has been added for me. Yeah, I generally agree just with the, if it if it was, if it cuts some of like that additional dialogue out, right? Because I think one of the things is moving the Lala soon, like the end of Char's counterattack line of like, she could have been like a mother to me. Um, and moving that here, that line, the impact of that line feels so lessened when he then goes on to talk about for like five minutes. And this right. is my mother and she was kidnapped by the zombies and this and that and that. And the other thing happened where it's like, we know that we've read the manga. Like, and Amuro has no idea anything about Shara's mom. I don't know why, even if he's fucking losing it at this point, I don't think he'd be going off about like, and here's my entire backstory about my mother who you don't give a fuck about. Um, like him just saying the Lala Soon line, and then having the actions around it speak all that, like all of that emotional stuff to me would like land way harder. And rather than me like occasionally, honestly, like rolling my eyes a little bit at how explicitly in your face he is narrating and expositing his like character motivations and the primary themes around the character to the audience effectively is like, if you just tone that stuff down, the rest of it is so good um, that like it would just be heightened so much more if, if those stronger elements were given more room to breathe. No, I think that's totally fair. Um, again, it, it didn't bother me to the same degree, but I think what you're saying is right. And I think like, you know, in my hypothetical movie version of this, this would be a fairly easy fix because I think yeah. the plotting is very good. It is some of that writing oh, yes. that, that maybe is a little weaker. Um, Sela gets an expanded role here mm -hmm. where on Al Baoku one, she does get a custom GM she goes out in, and I like that Sela has a Gundam. It's cool. It gets a color spread. It looks very good. And then on Abaku, she does. She meets a group of Zeon loyalists, like loyal to the actual Zeon Zoom Daikun, and she reveals herself as Artesia and sort of rallies them. And this is one of the ways that they're able to sort of win at Abaku. And I think that whole thing is is a really cool and like satisfying yeah. payoff, especially for like this expanded version of Sela. It's the hero moment I always kind of wanted her to have. Yeah, th this is a change that I really like. Um, it's, it's obviously it's one that like in the TV show certainly did not have the time for <laughs> at no. this point because the TV show had had seven of its episodes cut from it. Um, at this point, um. But yeah, for the manga, especially getting more focus on Sela Sashartesia, 
um, getting to have, yeah, that full moment of her, like, reclaiming some elements of her past and using that for the present. Like, it's just a very nice, clean plot turn. Um, is like a really satisfying resolution for that um, character. Um, yeah, the, like all that stuff worked great. Uh, there's a really f fantastic scene with Kaecilia where she starts hearing about it and she like realizes how much she fucked up by just being like, because uh, she was like, oh, I, I knew that the other child of Zianzum Daikun was on the white base. Like her, you know, her like network of spies had figured all that out, but she had just sort of like ignored it thinking that, oh, it's just, she's just a little girl is nothing and like that realization that like the real monster that she had ignored the entire time the one that's like in many ways actually going to get her killed is Sela because Sela starting that rebellion is much more central to the Federation taking Abawaku because in general it feels like Abawaku is a much more desperate fight on the part of the Federation than it felt like in the anime like I think there's just more of a sense of like if the Federation lost here, it's totally over. Whereas I think in the anime, there's just such a sense of like the momentum has moved so strongly in the Federation's camp that like even with the loss of General Revel in the Solar Ray and all that stuff happening, that it feels like an inevitability that eventually the Federation will win. And more of the drama you're caring about is Amuro and his fate and the emotional and personal stakes for him amidst this larger role with this war that he's a small part of. Um, but I think for the manga caring more about that bigger scale of the conflict and that stuff being a central focus, making it a much more desperate battle. And then Sela's turn of guiding this revolt being a key thing that without it, likely the war would have been lost. I just think it's like a very smart, like really, really genius kind of adaptational choice. Oh, totally. Um because, yeah, I, I agree with you. They do make it a more desperate battle because they, they like, what's the name of the, the admiral or the captain that they first meet on Luna 2 and then he shows up a couple more times. Um, oh I, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, he's a bigger character in the manga and he winds up as like the last Joaquin, admiral. Admiral Joaquin. Joaquin that's his name. Yeah, Joaquin winds up as sort of like the last leader standing after mm -hmm. the solar ray goes off. And so Joaquin and Bright wind up doing a lot sort of together to rally the troops because Bright like was was making the push towards Abaku, Solar Ray goes off, and then he has this choice basically of like, do we finish the it's it's kind of like if D-Day was the final battle somehow, uh -huh. right? And so that's they make this push and they sort of pull through and everyone gets their big hero moments. But the the final confrontation on Abaku, they really make it a three-pronged thing of Amuro, Shar, and Sela as kind of all equally important. And Amuro gets some really good moments, not to be lost in the shuffle. He has a scene before he goes out for the final battle with uh, what will wind up being Shar and the, the what's the suit he's in? The the Ziong. The Ziong, yeah. Um, where Amuro is, he's got one of his like juice boxes or whatever they are. I know they're not. It's the space-like yeah, drinks. He's got he's his got. apple juice and yeah. his Lunchable. Yeah, he's got his apple juice. And his, he got his Capri Sun out of yeah. his uh, pizza Lunchable that his mom bought him because uh, it was a special occasion. Anyway, um, and he has a final conversation with Frau Bo. I really love this moment. He and Frau don't really get a denouement in the anime. And some of that's purposeful. But I think this scene manages to thread the needle between Amuro has matured as a person, but he's also left Frau Bo behind. Because I think the scene acknowledges they're not going to get married and have kids and all this stuff, right? But they can still be friends. You know, they he still cares for her. He's fighting in part because he doesn't want her to die, right? Um, and I think it's a really lovely little scene. And at the end of it, you get an amazing hero moment where 
some like all the alarms start going off and over the intercom it says like a mobile suit is closing in and Amro has a little flash and goes Shar and it's a big full page panel where he's holding Frau and he says Shar is coming and then he like kicks into action and he sends everyone away and he goes out into battle for like the final battle it's very cool and I like Amro just getting to play the hero in that moment yeah no that is that is a, a really great uh really great sequence yeah, that, that, yeah there's just some good shots of like you know because the battle feels much more drawn out because i mean it's you know it's basically one episode of the anime um you're so you you get a lot of more stuff of like amuro coming back and he you see him like how like haggard he is uh because he's going out in multiple waves along with everyone else in fighting uh on the front lines yeah like that 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 scene is particularly nice yeah one other thing we haven't talked about that I really love is we talked about how you can kind of hear the music sometimes while reading this manga. Yeah, uh-huh. but you can literally hear it because at several major points, Yasuhiko just writes in the lyrics from the mm-hmm. Daisuke Inoue songs used in the movie trilogy, including at the very end, the, the words that kind of end the manga are that song. Um, you know, yes, my sweet, yes, my sweetest, I want to get back where you were, all that stuff, right? Um, yes, which is very funny when you you know when you're reading the Japanese version and all of a sudden all this English text pops up. It's like what the fuck? What's happening? Yeah. Oh right, the song. It's it's fucking great. They do that there. They do it at the Battle of Solomon with soldiers of sorrow. Uh, they do it in and then they do it also in the Cosmic Glow. You get the song yes. there. I think that is a genius little move. I loved that, Sean. Yes. No. I. You know that. When as soon as I saw that, I'm like, I'm sure this was like Jonathan's favorite part of the entire manga. So um, great. Yeah. It's very good. It's like I do particularly like um because at the very end, the page that's a full page spread of Amro and like Amro floating towards the white base crew that are all on the little like lifeboat or whatever, reaching out to him, and you just have the words, "Yes, my sweet. Yes, my sweetest. I want to get back where you are." Um, and then in Jap- reading in Japanese, then at the bottom of that in Japanese text, it says, Darimo hitori de wa ikirare dai, which means like nobody can live alone. Um, yeah. And it's it's more or less, the, in terms of our characters, it's the last moment of the manga. Um, although you then get some like kind of wide shots of um, everything else happening and the narrated, narrative voice coming in and wrapping things up. Um, but yes, I think that is, because that is a great moment and a great idea, because it's not just using the lyrics is a gimmick it's like it's he pairs the lyrics visually with moments that accentuate what the specific lyrics are talking about such that it reads more like poetry commenting on the that big moment rather than just being like oh this is a very popular song that is in the japanese popular consciousness so deeply associated with gundam because remember the gundam movies were the things that exploded really big so they're like really closely associated with people's memories of first gundam over there um, far more so than it is for like the Western fan base of this series, um, so it, like it makes sense to integrate it really like deeply into the art in those moments, and it's a it's a cool idea. Yeah, again, yeah, that final page of everyone on the lifeboat reaching out for Amuro, Amuro reaching out for them, flying through space, and it ends with the words "No one can survive alone." Juxtaposed against that, uh, you know, doesn't get better than that. Come on, that is that's brilliant. That's a brilliant choice. Yeah, yeah. It's- some very, very, very good stuff. What else to talk about from the manga here or elsewhere? Um, I think that's a lot of big stuff. Uh, there was a couple of other moments I wanted to point out. Uh, so, like, one thing I think is interesting, and there's things I like about this, things that I think are kind of weird about how it's done. Um, but Shalia Bull makes the cut. He's he's in here. It's, like, a thing that <laughs> y- you would assume would get cut out of the manga adaptation because there are lots of, like, other things that are great that would 
I mean, know why they were cut for a pacing stuff of like, you know, you don't get Iselina's fate um, is cut out for the manga version. You don't get any of like the fun little episodes like Time Be Still isn't in here. But they, but he did find a place to squeeze Shalia Bull in in the duel in Texas. Um, and I do, I like that. But I, I'm very confused by the choice. And it is lampshaded in dialogue. So he's aware of it, of, of the idea of using the brow bro not Fraubo, the Brow Bro, um, which is the like kind of prototype of the Elmeth, the sort of prototypes of the kind of bit concept where it's got the four like guns on each kind of like side of the ship that are connected to cables that shoot out. And so it's like, uh, you know, it's like a bit or a funnel in Gundam, only it's physically connected to the mobile armor to sort of get the idea that it's a prototype. But he uses it inside of a colony, which completely defeats the purpose of piloting the fucking Brow Bro. The entire idea of the omnidirectional attack of the Brow Bro is that it can get you from anywhere because you're in space. It's a big fucking like sphere looking thing with four guns that can attack from any angle, except for if you're in a colony in which it very much can attack from any angle because it's in a physical like it's constrained in this like canyon. Um, and again, like the dialogue specifically points this out because I was watching being like befuddled by the use of the Brow in this context. One of the characters says is like, oh, well, he can't, you know, Shalia Bull can't use the Brow to its like highest potential because he's inside the colony. It's like, well, why didn't you fucking attack them outside the colony then? What? Why did you wait here and do an ambush here? Why not ambush them in like the whole fucking debris area around the Texas colony the thing that Makave did in the duel in Texas with his bombs and all that shit it's very weird it is weird but I was happy to see Chaliable there you know Brow Bro is a great name for a mobile suit so why not yeah and and the glasses lady who is the original pilot of the Brow Bro in the anime then there's like that one little like one off fight um, where that idea is introduced she is there she's in the background um, I was, Interesting. I was, I was looking for her as soon as the brow bro popped up. I'm like, "Where's like glasses scientist lady from the one episode of Gundam?" Um, My favorite she, character, yeah, glasses like, scientist yeah. lady. We all love glasses yeah. scientist her, lady. And who I like to believe is her cousin, which is the guy who is in the manga also, who tells Char that uh, there's no reason to have legs in space. It's all just there for show, and the people up top just don't understand it. Um, I like to think that they're related somehow. Oh, Sean, there's, they do extra, they give that character a name and he even gets yes. another joke where he's like running off with extra prototypes. They're like, come on, man, you're going to die. I, I assumed that was made just for you. Yes, no, they're, they're getting a lot more with that dude. It makes up a little bit for the fact that they cut out a couple of my favorite little Amuro moments. Like Amuro doesn't give have his toolbox moment with Kai. Yep. And then Amuro doesn't have what is probably my favorite Amuro scene in all of original Mobile Suit Gundam, which is, uh, and it makes sense it gets cut it got cut in the movies because you changed where new types get introduced. But the scene of the dude being like, oh, I heard you're a new type pilot. And Amro doesn't know what that is yet. And so he's like, really? Everyone calls him and says, I'm really old fashioned. And it's maybe my favorite line of dialogue that Amro has in the entire series. Unfortunately, an anime <laughs> exclusive, an anime TV exclusive. Um, cause again, Look, like, this, is... this treats new type stuff the way like the movie does where it's introduced kind of around the same point it is in the movie version. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is why you've got to watch all the Gundam. Because exactly. the anime has all these things that are iconic and perfect. And the movies have, like, the Daisuke and Noe music. And some of that really sweet animation. Uh -huh. But the manga is the only place you can see Yasuhiko's just unfiltered art for 12 volumes. It's good stuff. This is all the Gundam. More Gundam, please. Yes. That's the alternate name for this podcast. More Gundam, please. Yes. Give me all the Gundam. Shoot it into my veins. That's the, that's the subtitle to that podcast. 
Please, sir, may I have some more Gundams? <laughs> yes. All right. Oh. Is there anything else to talk about with the origin? Um, I'm assuming that in the the uh, perfect editions, they have the like bonus chapters or whatever yes. at the end. Yeah, yeah. Those it's are, all in those... volume twelve. Yeah, yeah. Because those are are interesting. Like I I don't know how you felt about them. I only particularly liked the and I really liked the one that's the kind of like college aged like Professor Degwin and all yes. that stuff in the birth of Sela. Like that chapter is really interesting and very cool. The other two ones that are set after Mobile Suit Gundam are like weird comedies and i couldn't didn't really understand a choice to make them like fully comic like one involves a ridiculous polo game uh between like ex-zeon soldiers and federation bodyguards for sela um and the other yeah. is a bunch of zeon soldiers trying to assassinate amuro as hayato is trying to tell amuro about like basically like amuro's hayato is going to propose to fraubo and wants amuro's permission because hayato has an inferiority complex about it um, and it's like some the idea of Kai visiting Sela and having a conversation after Mobile Suit Gundam, and the idea of Amuro, Fraubo, and Hayato all like going out with the kids to an amusement park after Mobile Suit Gundam. Those ideas are great, but them being a vehicle for like very kind of standard manga gags, it felt very like a really weird choice to me. Yeah, I'm looking up in here. It says where these were written for because these weren't just like serialized alongside the manga. Mm -hmm. They were written for other sources. So, yeah, um, the first chapter, the one where Sailor's birth, which I agree, that one's that one's so good. I wish it was in the anime somewhere, like in yes. the OVA. It's it's really really good. Um, but then you have the the one that is about Sailor and the polo game was that first appeared in Official Guidebook Three from 2011. And the second half was in the March 2012 issue of Gundam Ace. So it was just kind of a two-part extra thing he did. And then uh, I'm looking for the third. And the first chapter was in another guidebook. The final chapter was a graphic novella that was produced uh, for the final volume of the Collector's Edition. Okay. Um, so it was made for that. Yeah. Um, they're interesting. I the, the Amuro chapter ends with this whole spiel from Amuro about how he's planning to go back to side seven because he wants to try to create a society for new types. Mm -hmm. So it's very clearly in a like non-Zeta continuity yeah. in some way. Um, the Polo one is fun in so much as you do get to see Sela running around playing Polo and she, he has a lot of fun drawing her that way. She yes. looks good in a Polo outfit. Um, but yeah, they are mostly comic and the Sela one disappointed me honestly because... This did not seem consistent with the Sela who announced herself as Artesia Som Daikun uh -huh. at the end of the manga. I yeah. feel like she would be a bigger political player in this world, you know? Yeah, it's just weird. And I didn't know anything about where they appeared because in the Tonka Buns, it's just like, this is just volume 24. I think it's, it calls itself like the special... Yeah. See if I could scroll to the top of it and see what they officially call it in the Japanese version. But there's no context given at all. Because like, I think they were first they collected for the Isoban, and then they did an extra volume of the Tankoban to put the Isoban content out. And so yes. in the Isoban, they're just the end of volume 12. Yeah, so in the Tankoban releases, it's called volume 24, the like special edition, basically, Tokubetsu Hen. Um, yeah. So because all of the arcs are in the Tankoban, it's each arc is two volumes, and so they're all called like this is the Odessa arc or Odessa hen. And so where it has like the name of the arc, it just calls it special. So yeah, so there's nothing 
really to indicate that it's something like weird or different or comes from a different source so like i knew that there were these one like chapters set after the story and so i was like super excited to read them because i'm like oh my god <laughs> that's gonna be so cool because you know my favorite stuff in the manga is the flashback stuff because that's where i feel like you know yosukazu yasiko gets to run free reign and we obviously didn't talk about it on this episode because we've been talking about it with the OVA stuff but that's to me the most exciting stuff in the manga version um so I thought we were going to get a couple of extra chapters like that but set after Mobile Suit Gundam I was like that's gonna be great and then all of a sudden it's like weird gags about like a like basically Gundam team rocket trying to assassinate Amro but they like fuck up in like exceedingly like <laughs> dramatic and ridiculous fashion all while Amro is like you know not even aware of it happening because he's concerned with what's going on with Aido it's like it's very like eight-year-old gag manga material and I was very bewildered by it yes it's weird but overall the origin is great the manga, the OVA, all of yeah. it. I think we have... I think we've done justice to it. We have done seven yeah. episodes on the origin, manga and OVA. I think it's probably time to wrap this phase of Weekly Suit Gundam up. The most weekly of all the phases of Weekly Suit Gundam. That we, you know, we, did, we didn't... It wasn't perfect. We had a little gap here right at the end that we did. We, other stuff was going on. But it was nice to do a weekly, weekly Suit Gundam for realsies. What are we doing next? I don't think we've decided. <laughs> I mean, the next show, because there's not a lot of shows left. I mean, the next show is one I have not actually watched other than the first couple of episodes would be Gundam Build Divers. We'd, we have, yeah, we have two directions we could go next time. We could do Thunderbolt or Divers. I kind of, people have been asking about this. I am still unsure of how we should cover Thunderbolt because it is a weird, unfinished anime yeah. and a manga that is still ongoing. I think we should do Divers next and hit Divers and Rerise because I would like to finish those before the third year anniversary. So whatever our next episode is, it's gonna we're going to have to have a little bit of a break because a lot is happening in the next couple weeks. Yeah. But sometime in April, hopefully we'll be back. And, and I don't know about you. Do you agree with my logic that maybe we just dive into Divers next? I didn't yes, mean to do I've... that pun, but... Yeah, I I think it's it's best to to go into divers and and re rise. Um, yeah, and then eventually we can do an episode on because there is like weird little bits. There's you know there there's uh Thunderbolt. There's the Twilight Axis thing that's like very small. Like there there's like we can do like a cleanup episode here or there, um, for other stuff. But but I do, you know I I've because it started like finishing airing right around the time we started doing Weekly Suit Gundam. Like the diver stuff is is the hole for me in Gundam watching. Like it's it's the big Gundam TV show that I fucking haven't watched because I've been too busy rewatching all the old Gundam stuff for this podcast. So I'm very eager to actually watch like a brand. You know, it's not brand new at this point. It's like several years old. But for me, a brand new TV show. Um, that's Mobile Suit Gundam, and for that, I'm very excited. Well, then that is your homework for next time, whenever that is. Maybe in about a month. Episodes 1 through 26 of Gundam Build Divers. It's on Crunchyroll. It's easy to find. Um, and it'll hopefully be a fun one. I've heard uh, from many, many listeners telling us they didn't like Divers, but they loved Re-Rise. So yeah, I'm just telling you, I've, I've heard, heard you. Well. Uh, and yeah. I'm, but I'm looking forward to both. I'm a sucker for this kind of thing. And we're almost, we're almost kind of done with this thing. We're not going to like end the podcast, but we're coming full circle. Yeah, we're almost at the end of, of currently released and published animated Gundam material, uh, which is is weird, but 
yeah, next time we'll look at Gundam Build Divers. And you know, when I watched it, I only watched the first couple of episodes, so I was a little confused that I have not yet gotten to the point where they actually dive, because presumably Gundam Build Divers is, of course, everyone's long-awaited Gundam anime about swimming. So I'm excited to see how they do that.